I don't know. And here they come! Sting! Fighting through the crowd to try and get to the ring. Truly got to fight through the crowd to get to the ring. Now hold on here. Wait a minute. Oh, that's, if that's Sting, who's that? Whoever that was, that was not Sting because that, or what? It's another Sting. Then this has got to be Sting. Then there's Sting. There's another Sting coming from the entranceway. Wasn't that the Sting that was coming down? No, there's, no, there's the Well, who's in the ring? Disco Inferno, you make history wrestling a woman in Las Vegas. It's history. It's never been done before. I don't even know what I'm going to do. I can't punch her. I can't kick her. But I'm the greatest wrestler on TV today, so I guarantee I will win. It's just like they say, cheerleaders don't belong on the field, all right? A woman's place hey, is in the home. Hey, what are you hey. doing out here bragging, huh? That's right, Jack. You should be interviewing me. I wanted to. He went hey. to And here comes three more. Sting clones. All the way to the ring. Now we're starting to get a little bit of even here. Oh! I believe we have found the real Sting! There he is! There's Sting! Bill Goldberg. Oh, my. Now, as we said, we're going to get our next match going. But, yeah, I tell you what, guys. Let's wait till Goldberg Who's walks next? out. Who's next? That's all I got to say. Who's next? You better call for help. Well, there's a fight getting ready to break out here now. We already got one going in the ring. Savage that blew right by the yeah. thing. And they didn't try to stop him. Not at all. Savage going up on top. He's going in. From the top. Unbelievable. What? No, no. Unbelievable. Is he going to jump, Tony? He's up. He got Hogan. He got Hogan. He got Hogan and Savage goes out. He jumped from the top of the cage. He got his liver. Can he do it the third time? The sleeper's on. Can he do it the third time? He's jumping. He's jumping. He's got it again. Randy Anderson poised, checking Hogan. Arm is up for That's one. It's up and down for two. He's out. He's Here out. It. Here it comes. Hey. It's yeah. it's yeah. He's yeah. He's yeah. He beat it. He beat it again. Rowdy. Hogan with a sting mask on. With a sting mask on. Yes. Is that a fan? What is yes. this? Yes, it is. Over the top. A fan has come in. Holy moly. What in the world is this guy doing? Boy, I'll tell you what, it's broke loose here, guys. It really it is. Has. Broke loose. This crowd is irate. They are standing around this building. Roddy Piper absolutely helpless. This fan is now paying the price to what should never, ever happen. Should never have to see. I'm no. going to tell you what, guys. This thing, Hogan is right now. 
Hollywood Hogan and Savage oh, are man. beating up a fan. They are beating up one of the fans. That's Doug Dillinger, head of security. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to October of 1997 for Volume 2 of this month's show. Four volumes, so this month, volume number one takes us to the WWF looking at bad blood. Volume number three takes us to ECW as they head into towards their latest pay-per-view. And volume number four, when we take it, will take us on our latest trip to the UFC. We're here in volume number two looking at WCW and their Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. I'm being joined by Rory McNamara. Rory, good morning. Good morning, everybody. And Tom Martin. Tom, hello. Good morning, Bob. Uh, Tom, kick us off with the news. Hulk Hogan and Sting was formalised for Starcade in December in a highly hyped contract signing that took place during the commercial of Hogan's new movie, Assault on Devil's Island. Hogan actually lost his main event match with Roddy Piper inside a 20-foot-high steel cage riddled with interference, including a truly ridiculous stunt from Randy Savage jumping from the top of it. Typically, it was another Hogan match that WCW did very little to promote, was a non-title match, but was marred by the lack of crowd heat and a ridiculous post-match angle involving a fan. The fan, in what was turns out was an angle, scaled the cage and got in the ring before taking a worked beatdown from Hogan and Savage. Nobody is really sure what the goal of this actually was. That was the main event of a balmy Halloween Havoc pay-per-view which featured what some are describing as one of WCW's best ever matches in Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio. Mysterio put his mask on the line, and right up until the start of the show was set to lose it, until Eric Bischoff finally relented and changed the finish. The show also included one of the worst match finishes you'll ever see, a botched instance of video replays, and Jacqueline defeating Disco Inferno in a match for Las Vegas Athletic Commission that literally wouldn't sanction. There were wins for Eugene Nagata, Chris Jericho, Alex Wright, Lex Luger and Randy Savage. Eric Bischoff held a locker room meeting a week after the death of Brian Pillman, warning WCW talent that he wasn't blind to what was going on regarding drug use. Bischoff also spoke about the WWF, saying if the lewd language and content on the show would drive advertisers away. He also told talent that the WWF would be in trouble in the next six months. He also had a falling out with Six, after Six refused to do a pair of house shows, after initially being told he could have the weekend off. He didn't quite fire Six for the second time in as many months, but did at one stage say to him, if you want your release, then just ask for it. Jeff Jarrett was released this month, after Eric Bischoff withdrew his contract offer, following what he perceived to be Jarrett's father, Jerry, negotiating in public too much. It's said that Bischoff knew once the 300 thousand dollar figure had gone public that they were trying to play WCW off against the WWF, although this could all just be him trying to save face. WCW smashed its all-time gate record this month for a show that hasn't even taken place yet. The advance for World War III next month is already at over $300,000. There's also conflicting reports on the contractual future of both, both Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. The WWF can't legally speak to either of them, but have been being very positive about Flair recently. And a reminder that we are on Patreon for five bucks a month if you'd like to say thank you and get early access to our shows where possible. Go to patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20RS. Links in the podcast description. And on our website, onto the ratings for a month and another bumper month for Nitro starts on September the 29th as Nitro to Raw, uh, four rather, to Raw's 2.7. Coming off the Bad Blood pay-per-view featuring the debut of Kane, Raw got up to a three, but Nitro held steady at a 3.9. For the rest of the month, it was Nitro dominance since on October the 13th, Nitro did a three 
3.8 to Rules 2.3. October the 20th, Nitro a massive 4.6 to Rules 2.9, which in the head-to-head hour is one of the highest gaps ever. Well, it was anyway. Until October the 27th, the night after Halloween Havoc, as Nitro did a 4.3 to Rules 2.3. We start TV on October the 6th with a quick on-screen remembrance to former WCW Cruiserweight flying Brian Pillman. The Nitro girls start us off as Tony runs down the card for the evening before Bischoff and Hogan come out. They tell us how Sting's still scared and how they're waiting for Piper to arrive. First up, we get Jarrett and versus Booker. They work the crowd a bit. We cut to a commercial and it's Booker with the roll-up win after Michael Colcock to Jarrett. We get a Hogan Piper hype video before Havoc. Larry does a bizarre product placement for Bengay calling gel and Alex Wright beats Billy Kidman with a German suplex. Next up, Mortis gives Ernest Miller his first singles run out. Cat gets the upset win with a big crossbody. The NWO give us a paid for Savage video and Tony shows us Hector Garza upsetting Scott Hall from last month. Hall runs down Larry then gives the rematch against Garza. Hall wins quick with the outsider's edge. Sick rounds houses the referee afterwards and then Hall tags him with a Z for Zabisco. Hour 2 starts with the desk telling us Bill Goldberg, or about him anyway, they make him sound like a big deal and give us a video to prove it. Disco then defends his TV title against DDP, but after Piper falls to savage interference, Macho gets a diamond cutter on the exposed concrete. Mean Gene brings out Piper after the medics get Savage to the back. He tells us the Outsiders will be defending their tag titles next week. He also says Paige and Savage will be last man standing and Hogan arrives. Hogan cuts down Piper and says he'll end his career. Bischoff takes out the knee and Hogan beats him down. Piper turns the tide and the NWO make the save. Mike Tanay gives us his latest history of the Lucha video. Eddie then defends against Ultimo Dragon just about hitting a frog splash for the win. In the main event, Kurt Henning beats Chris Benoit with his fisherman suplex. A returning Ric Flair spoils the NWO beatdown and we see him literally chase Henning down the street, taking out Doug Dillinger in the process. Flair returns to the arena, grabs the mic from Gene. He says it's not about politics, it's not about being the best. He talks out talks out Henning at Havoc, whether it's booked or not, and Hogan's next. Gene! I gotta talk to him from a feather of the building! Because tonight... We are going to talk reality! Woo! Everybody, everybody in their adult lifetime should have a moment on earth like this. Thank you! talking about. This is reality. Woo! I, in my career, have been figure forward, wrecked, scorpioned, leg dropped, put to sleep, left for dead, and I'm still here tonight. Minneapolis, I grew up here, 
And many of us born, many of us bred, and I'm only gonna die. Many of us dead. So Henning, Hogan, since you two have become the focus of my life, let me explain it to you. It's not about politics because they wanted me out for 10 years. It's not about being the best because arguably, arguably, there's never been one better than the nature boy. That's me. So, Henning, you took it upon yourself. Slam my head in the cage. You, my friend, walked back to the dressing room. You laughed. You high five Nash. You high five Hall. You high five Six. You said, Whoa, I'm one of you now. I'm NWO. That's the truth. But now, now, you're NWO, not for life, for three more weeks, because as God is my witness, Halloween Havoc, whether I book it or don't book it, I'm coming to get you if I don't get you first. I'm not coming to show you or anybody else who the better wrestler is. I'm coming to hurt you for real for a long, long time. Then, oh, Hollywood! Oh, Hollywood! If there's anything left of you, Hogan, after the commissioner gets through with you, I promise you, we've traveled at the same level. In your book and my book, I'm Dory Funk, Jack Briscoe, Harley Race, Bruce Roddy, Jesse Rhodes. I am Rick Flair, and you're not. I have been there. And Hogan, if you live through this year, you will have me in your face until we hook up right here on Nitro. So we come back uh, for some TV discussion at the end of the first show. Uh, Nitro busy as always, but not a not a gigantic month this month but you know very watchable as always things going on there's a lot of you know things that are happening which is always you know interesting to see if nothing else um we'll start at the end of the first show uh we get the get a really really good match between chris benoit and kurt henning 
um, you know, I mean, Hedy Hedy has been looking better in the ring this month. You know, he's been going for a few months now. I think he's he's got over that ring rust. Plus, it, it kind of does help you in the ring with a guy like Chris Benoit. You're always going to look quite good. Um, but the focus actually isn't about the match. It's actually about what happened afterwards. Um, because as the as the NWI interfered to uh, post match, Hedy won cleanly. Ric Flair stormed out, got a big reaction in uh, in Minnesota, um, and then Henning ran off the NWO, ran off Henning. Uh, sorry, Flair ran off the NWO, ran off Hennig, and as they came back from commercial, Flair grabbed the mic from Oakland, went in the ring, and cut the promo that you just heard, this impassioned promo. Um, Tom, this promo was really, really good in one of the one of the better, if not one of the very best Nitro finishes we've ever seen. I guess my only question is, have they rushed Flair back a bit too soon? That's a good question. I think um, this definitely worked, uh, if, even even if you just watch it and it's contained it on its own. It, it was a very exciting return. Uh, it's always a good idea to bring someone back in their hometown because they get the type of reaction they wouldn't get anywhere else. Also, you could tell that Flair was so up for it. Uh, he had that look in his eye that we've talked about before where you can tell when he's really up for something and he... he he stormed down. The crowd was going crazy. He he was running around, just chased. Henny went, and then his 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 mic work felt like he was just backstage screaming, "Let me out! Let me out! I, I want to go!" And you really got the impression that it was you know that it wasn't scripted. What he was saying felt very much from the heart. Um, he's obviously not enjo- not enjoyed being out of the ring for his time out. Um, have they rushed it? I, I think, it, I guess, as always, it's tricky to say at this stage because it, it, it will see um, what comes after it as to whether it was a, a mistake. But I think it was a good idea for the purposes of this Nitro and this Nitro alone because it did feel quite electric. Uh, and I, it, was, it was a hell of a promo. Cut, Flair always cuts a promo worth watching. Uh, but this one, he was, he was talking about hurting uh, Hennig for real. And it sounded like he was really genuinely after him and, and, and wanted to kill him, basically. So, yeah, it, it, I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm not sure about, about, about rushing, rushing him back. The only thing, I, I presume you asked that because it, uh, the time he's been out or is it just the, the, the timing of it? Well, for, more in the sense that when when he left after full brawl, they were you know the reports were he was going to be out for a couple of months, and mm. you know the the promo that you cut on the, you know by telephone on the final Nitro September kind of suggested I'm not going to be back for a while. So I don't know exactly whether the plan has just changed or whether Flair's just like well I'm ready. Um, but in my mind, like it was it was the, I'm kind of focusing on the promo he cut at the end of last month where he basically kind of said look I'm going to be away for a while. You guys do what you need to do because Flair basically said you know I'm breaking up the horsemen because I can't be around to sort them out um, and then mm. a week later he's back now you know I, I don't have an issue with it necessarily it's just more I think originally they planned for him to be out a lot longer and obviously it turned out Flair's like well I'm ready um, I guess just in my mind would they have been able to do more had they have kept Flair off of TV for a couple of months yeah, sure. I get what you're saying. It meant more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. I, th- I think well, there's two things there, though. I think one thing here is what I, what I touched on in saying that Ric Flair just doesn't like not being in the ring. And I, I, you get the impression he, he gets very, he twiddles his thumbs and gets very antsy when he's not working and he's not traveling the country. He's a real workaholic when it comes to, to, to pro wrestling. He, he loves it. And also, I, I, it's part of the WCW frantic booking. I, I don't think they really think long term. I think if someone shouts loud enough and it's one of the people that they listen to when they're shouting, they tend to just go along with it. I don't think they're thinking long term with this. So, but it, it was a really good, it was a really good promo, and it's worth watching. 
Roy. Yeah, they were never going to keep Flair off TV for two months. Can you really imagine Ric Flair being given two months off and him going around the supermarket looking at the price of baked beans? No, he wants to be in there wrestling. And this was a this was a tremendous promo. I've got to say, my favourite Flair promos are the ones where he normally tones it down a notch and he's quite reflective, Rick, when he invites JR into his house after Terry Funk breaks his neck or he's taking that long, slow drive to the arena with Mean Gene at Starcade 93. Things like that, because I've seen a lot of shouty Ric Flair promos. But this is one of the better shouty Ric Flair promos you've seen in a long time. There was real fire in his eyes. The tears in his eyes five years ago, and now it's fire. And yeah, Tom, you're absolutely right. I thought it was very interesting, some of the insider terms Rick dropped, because he's normally kayfabe enforcer. He's there talking about hurting Hennig for real. He talks about WCW having to get the match booked, which I thought was really interesting. And the real reason I loved this promo is... When Hennig turned on the horseman and joined the NWO, that Flair would take that as the ultimate personal slight. Now, you only leave the horseman if we tell you to. You do not do it on your own terms. And that played in perfectly to the story they're trying to tell. They probably did rush it a couple of weeks, but the promo itself, I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah, I loved it. Great show, Closer. Yeah, uh, it, it really was. Um, you know, uh, like I, I think perhaps you know, the, the being in... Minnesota may be just helpful stop, um, you know, and, and to a point we are in a, a ratings battle, although WCW doing pretty well, I suspect they're a smash rule without Flair. Um, you know, it's also, you know, it's also possible they thought, well, we, we'd rather get this, you know, I, I guess in my mind, like, you know, to me, as much as you're both right, if Flair's ready in theory, you know, if, if, if he's available, you might as well use him. I just think it would have meant more if he'd have stayed off of TV for a couple of months. And that's kind of what I was preparing for. The promo at the end of September was, I'm going to be away for a while. I can't manage the horseman. Paige, Piper, etc. You know, giant. Go out there and, and sort the guys out, but leave a bit for me when I'm back. He only been gone about two hours the following night, and he's already back on the show. Um, well, yeah, again, I don't have a problem with I just think it would have meant more. And I, I feel like, you know... <sighs> I feel that the less we see in ring of Ric Flair in in 1997, 1998, the better now. I don't think Flair needs to be wrestling matches all that frequently. I think we're going to see on the pay-per-view that, you know, he Ric Flair is no longer a guy you can put in the ring and guarantee quality from. There's no shame in that. He's old enough. Um, and God knows he's not the only one. Um, but, yeah, I guess I was expecting him to be out for long, and it was a bit surprised he came back so soon. Um, but the pieces did fall into place, and... You know, Flair, his in-ring ability might be over the hill, but he's still a bloody, bloody good wrestler, a bloody, bloody good promo, rather. And this was one of those. Um, you know, I think, Roy, you spoke about you know Flair's ability to change cadence and change volume. You know, I think you compare... I, I, as much as it was on the phone, as only, only as far as you can go with a phoned-in promo. I thought Flair, the week before, was really, really good as well. Um you know, and that's the kind of, that's a difference maker. But I thought it was interesting. I think it's definitely, you know, if you want to count the, the main event as well, it's very definitely a, a kind of 15, 20 minutes bit to go back and watch. Um, and Flair's at his peak. And yeah, it, it added, a, in theory, what was another big main name match to what was already quite a stacked Halloween Havoc card. For the second week running, Hogan and Bischoff arrived to open the show on October the 13th, this time with a neck brace Randy Savage. Bischoff runs a guerrilla marketing promo for Hogan's new TV movie before moving on to Piper. They call out his interference and say Paige will get dropped like a bad habit. 
Tony and Mike run down tonight's four title defences and Larry tells us Piper has the world title belt. First up, we get Eddie versus Psychosis with Eddie retaining his Cruiserweight title. Today then airs his Lucha tape next, focusing on masks. Mean Gene brings out Piper. He reaffirms his status as acting commissioner. Bischoff can sit down. Hogan can get his belt when he appreciates it and the outsiders will defend their titles. Steve Regal's back to face Mongo, but Michael winning with his tombstone. Gene then talks to Deborah. They discuss Jarrett leaving and she tells Mongo she has a surprise for him at Halloween Havoc. Yuji Nagata gets a win over Chris Jericho and we get a very good, very good Raven package. He preaches over a music box sitting in the dark corner of a nursery. He then seen sitting at ringside with Perry Saturn. Bill Goldberg arrives now using Pat Tanaka's old music and gets another win, this time with Scotty Riggs. They're calling his finisher a jackhammer. The Nitro girls start off out number two and out comes Scott Hall and Six with no Kevin Nash. Hall gets nails with, nailed with trash mid-promo and he and Six will defend their titles against the Steiners with DBRC. The Steiners hit a super DDT to Six but Hall pulls out the ref at two. They then get the Bulldog to Hall and Larry counts the three for the new tag team champions. Dimalenko and Rey Mysterio Jr. have a good TV match. Mysterio has it won with his springboard Rana, but Eddie runs in, steals the mask, and Malenko wins with the Cloverleaf. We're going to get a really nice DDP promo talking about success. Piper's out with Gene to confirm the Steiner's victory stands, but Bischoff interrupts. Piper wraps his fist with his belt, but the NWO arrive. Quote unquote Sting then arrives, looking a few inches taller with a larger chin. It's Hollywood who takes out Piper with the bat. Apparently still still no one knows what Sting looks like. We get a Flair Henning hype video. Flash Norton and Ray Trayer then give us an All Japan heavyweight matchup. Norton winning with Bagwell and Vincent. Disco defends his TV title against Alex Wright despite Miss Jacqueline's best efforts. Main event time and it's Paige and Henning. They go surprisingly long. Flair arrives to go for Henning but as Paige has him pinned, Flair breaks through security and gets at Henning. Bit of a cluster ending but Piper comes out to clarify they did kind of sell that Paige won the title, but they kind of reneged on that next week. He raises Paige's hand, but if it turns into a brawl with the NWO, they take out Paige and Piper. Savage elbows DDP, Hogan belts hot rod. We see Sting in the bleachers, but there's Sting in the crowd. Sting down the aisle, several Stings, they all get taken out. But one final one arrives, he gets hit by Bagwell, but he reveals the ruse, and it's the real Sting. The NWO leg it, Sting then gives Piper the belt to close the show. We open up week three with a downed NWO in the back. There's an icon shirt, a black bat and a DDP sprayed on the ground. Or DDP's outline even. And outline Bischoff and Hogan pace the ring. Saris joins us with the bat and shirt. They call out three sus- the three suspects but to no avail. Like Mongo last week, Benoit arrives to generic non-horseman music. He falls to Eddie Guerrero's frog splash. Strangely, they replay last week's page perfect finish and it cleans up how clustered it was. Goldberg's out, this time it's Wrath, he gets Jack Hammond for even getting his coat and helmet off. Safe to say, Goldberg might be a player soon. We then hear from him as he says, who's next? Vandenberg gets his chance at redemption as Mortis now gets Mongo, but it's another run out for the ex-football player, the Tombstone getting the win. Gene talks to McMichael afterwards, but Deborah arrives, we still don't know who her surprise is. Well, we did, it wouldn't be a surprise, though. Come on. We get another Raven video, this time from the playground, and they nail it again. This week's Mike Tenay video focuses on Rey Mysterio Jr. They build this mass match with Eddie at Havoc, and then Eugene Agata defeats Hooven to Guerrero. Raven's group seems to be growing as now Billy Kim and Stevie sat behind him and Saturn. Our one main event sees the Giant beat Viano 4 and Viano 5. 
Disco defends his TV title against Rey Mysterio, but Eddie Running calls it the DQ. Bischoff and Hogan rant nonsensically. Even McMahon gets a name drop. It's basically come to nothing. Henning defends his US title against Dean Malenko. He gets the ropes as Malenko gets Cloverleaf and the Fisherman Suplex for the win. Ray Trailer gets another shot, Scott Norton, but it ends in the NWOB team beatdown. Luger makes his first appearance for the month to take on Booker T. He wins with the torture rack. Gene talks to Lex out of the bell. He says Booker's got good, but Hall will be cut before it comes Sunday. Larry then tells us how he'll be down the line, regardless of his personal thoughts. Scott Hall arrives for the main event. He runs WCW, Steiner's, Luger and Zabisco all get put down. He faces Scott Steiner, but after Larry in the ref, a bag-headed ref, oddly looks like Vincent, comes out and appears to count the three for Hall. Bischoff, Hogan and Savage arrive to close the show after dropping McMahon's name again and plugging Hogan's new movie. They remember there's a pay-per-view on Sunday. Again, Tony can't stop a spot a sting. One's Paige, one's Piper. A, cra- a cage drops from the sky and with it comes the real stinger. I don't think I really know what success is yet. Mainly because I haven't reached my goals in or out of the ring. You see, I don't measure my goals the way other people do, especially the Hogan's and the Savages. You know, how big's my house, how expensive is my car, whatever. You see, Kimberly and I, we still live in the same house. I still hang with the same guys, I always have. And I still come right here to the power plant to keep that edge. I'm the same person, I'm only more focused. You see, I can't afford not to be more focused. Piper. I got a lot of respect for what Piper's doing as the interim commissioner of WCW. He's taking a lot on his plate right now. I especially appreciate what he did for me last week on Nitro with that savage situation. That could have got ugly, really ugly. Later that night on Nitro, Commissioner Piper set the rules of the Paige Savage match, which would be a sudden death match. No time limit, no disqualification, no submission, no pinfalls. (laughs) Basically, no rules. That no rules thing, I don't make a man think. Mainly because I know what a savage, savage really is. I know how vicious he can be, and I know what a real psycho he really is. And I know how much he hates me. But more than anything, I know how much I'm going to be hurting the next day and days to follow. A sudden death match. I'd be lying to you if I told you I wasn't the least bit nervous. But that's what keeps me coming back here to the power plant. Reminds me where I come from. Keeps me focused. Some of the best coaches will tell their players, fellas, don't look past this game. Me being in my zone allows me not to look past October 26th at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. I can't afford a negative thought in my head. Negative breeds negative, positive breeds positive. Slim Jim's Halloween Havoc, it's all I can think about. It's all I can afford to think about. And then one more T. Well, we've gone through, we reviewed two TVs there in a row, but the, the, the second segment we'll review before the pay-per-view is actually the one that ended the second show of the month. 
Um, a post-match beatdown by the NWO on, on Roddy Piper and on uh, Diane Dallas Page. Um, and then, Rory, a lot of things started appearing. And I think for the, for, for the first time ever, I think Tarrant Giovanni, like, it, it took him seeing about three of them. But I think for the first time ever, Tarrant Giovanni went, maybe that's not the real thing. And, and, and that, that is the, we finally, the, the WCW announcers, like six months after it was really, really obvious, finally the WCW announcers have gone, well, there's three of them, so I guess they all can't be Sting. Um, but, Roy, what do you think of the use of these multiple Stings? I, I, I think it's, you know, it's something that seems to be put together largely by Hogan and Kevin Sullivan, so I read. Um, I think so far, so good. And it played into a very good post-match angle where, as it ended, after all of these fake Stings came out and just got wiped out by the NWO, then another fake Sting comes out, gets hit by Bagwell, stands his ground, whips the, you know, he lays out Bagwell with a... Um, you know, his, his, his death drop finisher, the wig falls off, which was brilliant, as, as he stands back up, and then he whips off the mask to reveal he's the actual Sting, and the place just fucking clears out, and he hands Piper Hogan's title belt. And Roy, I, I thought this was really well done. It was. They've just got to be a little bit careful. I mean, I, I loved it. It was such a, an amazing bunch of Sting's coming out from here, there, everywhere, every which way but loose. Got to be a little bit careful, though, because it, did threaten to, I think it was Dave Meltz who almost called it like a, a circus act, and I think he's, he's right. It just about held off because of that magnificent payoff of the real sting. No selling a Bagwell punch, because, well, you would, wouldn't you? And then giving him what for, and the crowd going absolutely loopy-loop. So, yeah, like I always say, your build-up can be a bit wonky, but if you get to the payoff, and that's right, then you can almost forgive it. Yes, fantastic visual, ended the right way. They can't do this sort of thing every week because it will look a bit hokey and cheesy. I would like to know if Sting ever speaks. I don't think he's going to for a while. What the real motivation is, where where these new Stings, fake Stings, extra Stings, whatever you want to call them, where they actually come from. But for now, yeah, I'm loving it. Tom? Hmm, yes, uh, this is a curious thing that uh, WCW are doing at this stage. It's, 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 I would say the large portion of my opinion is that I think it's unnecessary, and we'll talk about this as the show goes on. For, for the most part, sending out loads of random stings that clearly aren't sting, it looks and is completely ridiculous. And the fact that the commentators don't recognise each of the stings, even though some of them are five foot five and some of them are six foot. Oh, no, come on, on the pay-per-view, Shivani went, now hang on a minute, maybe that's not, that, that was, the, that was the, the first concession we ever got from a WCW announcer, was on the pay-per-view where Shivani goes, maybe it's not the real thing, like that's six I months know, but come on. The out. but yeah, it's, it's all the, a bit... All the wigs are different though, all, like they're not even the same <laughs> wigs, like <laughs> they, they, they come out and, and the, way, the thing that makes me laugh is that they go, oh my god, it's Sting, and, it's, and literally everyone is going, no it's not, then another one comes out, Oh, there's Sting. It's, and it's so ludicrous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Anyone over the age of 12 would be like, what the, what the fuck are they doing? Anyway, so, um, but, but, but that, putting that aside, it, within this actual promo, as in uh, this section, sorry, at the end of, of Nitro, when the real Sting ap- appeared, it all made sense. And you go, right, that's why they've done it. Because when he no-sold that, that punch from Bagwell and then took the mask off, I popped. I was like, that's great. That makes sense. But you can't do that every time, and all the other times they do, they do it. And the whole thing is just so comical, though. Like, when the first thing got in the ring, the wig had actually fallen off. So you could see, you could see he was wearing a hairnet, and he, he looked, it, looked, it looked like a really bad Halloween costume, and he just couldn't get the wig. So, anyway, 
but, but for that moment and that moment alone, it was really good. Um, and the crowd loved it. They lapped it up. And I get the impression that the, the crowd lap all this shit up. Half of them are pissed anyway. So, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, maybe, we're, maybe we're being over, overly critical. Um, but for the, for, for the context of this, this angle and story here, it really made sense and it was really exciting, yeah. Yeah, I hope they don't overdo it. You know, we've still got probably, what, seven or eight Nitros before Starcade. You know, there's a long time to go, and I hope they don't keep pushing this angle. we got a lot of it on the pay-per-view as well. And, I, you know, you don't want people's first reaction when they see Sting to be, is that Sting? You don't want to get that far across. They're not there yet, but if they keep doing the whole fake Sting thing, eventually people are going to see the real one and not be sure. Um... Although, admittedly, their, their radar of picking fake things has been pretty good so far, it should be said. I thought this was great as, as an angle, though. Again, they, you know, they, 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 it's, not, it's not the only time this month they push the, the multiple sting thing. We're going to get it on the pay-per-view. Um, but but I, I think the, the real stroke of genius here was sending the real sting out dressed as a fake sting. Yeah, um, absolutely. That, that was, you know, put, put the real sting in a shit sting wig and a sting mask. And then he looks like all the others. I mean, it doesn't, as you say, Tom, it doesn't help that some of them clearly are like five foot eight. Like, you know, <laughs> some of them clearly aren't the right size. And also, some uh, of them have got the wrong skin colour as well. I remember when, uh, there's a section, I can't remember what it is, they, sent, they, they clearly sent Hogan out dressed as Sting. And he, his permatan makes it look like. Uh, that's the pay per view, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and you can, it's so obvious. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're sending out... They're, at least their job has got something to do, right? Is it, it, part of the logic. True. Um, but, yeah, that's... that's you know, I, I thought it was a one-off angle. Send loads of fake things out and, you know, make it look like an NWO ruse, perhaps, and then, and then you know, Bagwell punches Sting and Sting hits his finisher and the crowd fucking go nuts because they're like, that's the real Sting. And then he, you know... It, the wig falling off was perfect. And the wig falling off meant he only had to whip the mask off when he stood back up. And then I was like, oh, shit, it's the actual Steve. That was really good. Um, I, I, I wish they'd clue in the commentators, though. Like, this whole... Yeah, I know what the idea is. The idea is it's meant to be a surprise, so the commentators play dumb, so the audience doesn't know. But the audience fucking knows, yeah. right? Everything, <laughs> everyone watching at home knows. Everyone being reading that some of these people have got bad views. They all know. Um, yeah, clue in, the, clue in your commentators a little bit more, and I think this would be perfect. I'm a bit worried if they push it for the next two months, but as a one-off angle, it was great. The pay-per-view, it kind of worked, so we'll come to that in a minute or later in the show. Um, but yeah, as a one-off angle, I thought this was really, really well done, um, and we'll discuss Hogan and Sting a little bit more at the end of the show. We move on to Halloween Havoc, or Slim Jim's Halloween Havoc, to give it its full title. Tom, you can kick us off with the results. Yeah, absolutely. So, in our opening match on the pay-per-view, Yuji uh, Nagata with Sonny Ono defeated Ultimo Dragon after 9 minutes 42 seconds. Chris Jericho defeated Gado in a singles match uh, after 7 minutes and 18 seconds. Rey Mysterio Jr. defeated Eddie Guerrero in a title versus mask match for the Cruiserweight Championship after 13 minutes and 51 seconds. Alex Wright with Deborah defeated Steve McMichael after 6 minutes and 31 seconds. Jacqueline defeated Disco Inferno after nine minutes and 39 seconds. Was that nine minutes? Nine whole minutes. Sorry, Tom, carry on. And all those 39 seconds. Um, Kurt Hennig defeated Ric Flair by disqualification in a a singles match for the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship after 13 minutes, 57 seconds. Lex Luger defeated Scott Hall, who was with six, um, with Larry Zabisco as a special guest referee in that match, 13 minutes and two seconds. 
Randy Savage with Miss Elizabeth defeated DDP, Diamond Dallas Page, in a Las Vegas sudden death match after 18 minutes and 7 seconds. And Roddy Piper defeated Hollywood Hogan in a steel cage match after 15 minutes and 37 seconds. Not for the WCW world title. Not that WCW were particularly desperate to mention that into the uh, in the weeks leading up to the show. Fine enough. Roy, what do you think of this show? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this in my life. In the news, I described it as balmy. That barely even scratches the surface. So I think this one's going to have to be a try and uncover the stone as we go along. Because freaking heck, so. Yeah, likewise. I've never watched a pay-per-view or even a, a Nitro or a Raw or anything, anything in pro wrestling. I really can't remember where I've gone from being so, this is the worst thing I've ever seen, to this is the be- one of the best things I've ever seen, more than once. It's so tonally all over the place. It's so messy. It's so good. It's so bad. It's so 1997 WCW. And also, it's so Halloween Havoc, because these shows are always fucking crazy. So, yeah, it's nuts. I don't know how we're going to rate this one, but it's going to be great to work out how we get there. Ah, uh, I, I, I don't believe in, in four years and two months watching or doing this podcast I've ever called a show must watch. And we've seen some really good shows. I mean, not many, but we've seen some really good shows over the years if you, if you look hard enough. I, I think this show's must watch. Like, it, it's, it's, it's definitely not a great show. It's also definitely not a terrible show. It features arguably one of the best matches we've ever covered. Um, I think I'm slightly softer on it than a lot of other people are, but I'll give them it being bloody good, if nothing else. And there's about five or six moments on this show that are just like, what the fuck is going on? And and I and, and, you know like in a in not in a not in a great way not in a terrible way just in a I've got no idea um and yeah I like for, for once uh, I think we're all three of us are sat here and good luck scoring it at the end uh, let's see what we get to anyway we start the show with Yuji Nagata with Sonny Ono versus the Ultimo Dragon big tear for a dragon shoulder tackle and a takedown the crowd are into both guys early with big boos for Nagata as well. Nagata lays in a couple of big kicks on the kneeling dragon for going for a camel clutch. A pile driver for a two by Nagata. The crowd get distracted by something somewhere else in the arena. Out comes Raven with Kidman, Saturn and a couple of others through the crowd. I think Steve Richards is one of them. Presumably they're going to be occupying some presumably very expensive front row Las Vegas seats. Ultimo Dragon hits a powerbomb for a near fall, then a moonsault. Nagata goes back to the kicks, this time to the arm with Dragon on the mat. A figure four by Nagata, Dragon fights out and goes for a big Dragon sleeper and the crowd are really into that. Dragon goes for a sleeper again, Nagata cuts him off, locks in an arm lock and Dragon taps out straight straight away. I, I like that actually. Just a quick note, I think Dragon's being written off for a few weeks to have some, I think some kind of minor surgery on his elbow or something like that. So I believe that was the part of the reasoning behind the otherwise quite surprising uh, clean victory. Tom, what do you think of this match? Yeah, it's interesting to have that note uh, before I just before I get into my thoughts on the match about about the post match arm break um, that Ono did on on Dragon because to me it felt totally unnecessary and, and, and sort of why they done that but that doesn't actually make sense if you, it, when you've got that information. Um, no, I liked this match. It was it was a good opener. Um, I've not seen Yuji Nagata work up until now. Um, or at least I don't remember remember seeing it. Um, and I thought he he came across well. This was actually a legit. It felt like a legit 
match. It has some spots that looked really, really realistic. Um, we know Dragon looks good with his feet, and he looks like he's hurting people when he when he when he's kicking them. Um, there were some really nice spots in this. I really liked the, the slingshot um, into the body kick from Nagata. That was that was a nice nice spot. Um, there were some really good bits in there, and I like I really liked the finish. You know, I'm a big obviously I, I cover a lot of the U, the UFC stuff on this podcast, the MMA show, um, and it felt like a really well worked, genuine finish to this match, and I really liked that. Um, uh, the only the only downside I really have from it is that it wasn't a great match, but it was re- it was really good. The only, the only downside is Ravens crew. What the fuck were they doing there? And, they, and for me, for me, I, 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 this gives you a little bit of a taster as to what is going to come in the rest of the show. It's like we're going to bring these people out and they're going to sit there, not really for any reason other than they, you know they've done it, they may have done it before. They're just going to sit there and we're going to show them every now and again. But just get used to this because we're going to do stuff and we're going to throw shit at you. It's going to make you go, "What the fuck are you doing?" Uh, I'm not. Just, uh, I'm not sure Raven Moon's crew coming out is in the top ten what the fuck on this show. No, no, but uh, it's just a teaser. You know when you go for a meal yeah. and they bring out a little thing and you, you oh, that's nice, I want a bit more of that. It's okay, well, we're going to wait for that. Wait, wait till you get your main course because then you won't fucking believe it. That's what's happening here. Um, but yeah, no, good, good opener. It was a really good, good, really good match. I liked it. Roy? One thing you can count on at WCW pay-per-views this year is, uh, is an excellent opener. I don't think they've had anything close to a bad one. I mean, even a few months ago we had our friends Mortis and Roth taking on Glacier and Ernest Miller, and even that was a good watch. This was better than that one, though, funnily enough. Yeah, excellent. First time I've really seen the gutter, and he impressed me massively. Uh, Dave Meltzer described this as a Japan-style match, and it was. It was the gutter using big moves. There was a move that after about two minutes, sort of a huge overhand reverse choke slam, reverse powerbomb, incredible. But he was using that as a setup for... <clears throat> for the major arm work now and in Japan that's how they go the big moves are used to prepare for the mat work whereas in North America as much as you get big moves it's the other way around and of course you've got Dragon in there who's going out all about that a perfect foil as I've said before the crowds now aren't just into Dragon's flippy moves they're into him and his character I love the psychology of the finish he's got an injured arm I've worked on the arm I'm going to lock on an arm bar and I'm going to win fantastic so yes I hope the gutter sticks around he's got a great move set Works a very different style to a lot of people. I hope Dragon comes back to see because he's great. So, yeah, excellent start. Yeah, match was very good. Uh, I really like the finish. Um, you know, uh, of, of all the finishes on the show, this was, probably the, this was probably the one that made the most sense in a way and the one that didn't just leave you kind of boggled. Um, I, Roy, I just don't get what they're doing with Ottawa Dragon. I mean, okay, I know they, they've kind of written him off here for, for the sake of, you know, some, some work to be done on his arm. But to me, Dragon's the best wrestler they've got. I, I can't quite work out what they're missing here. Um, I, I kind of feel the same way about Mysterio, who, you know, we'll come to the backstory behind that when we get there. To me, like, there's two guys here with massive potential. They're not really going anywhere. Um, and I don't know that Dragon losing to a guy that we've not seen before is is WCW particularly getting the plot where they should be with the, where Dragon's concerned. No, I think that's a very good point. I mean, Dragon's been around for about a year and a half now. Somebody like him, he's pretty much done in WCW everything he's going to do. He's been cruiserweight champion. He's been TV champion as well, I believe. He's probably been US champion. That's everybody's cruiserweight TV and US champion these days anyway. So those battles are completely interchangeable until Stephen Michael comes along. So yeah, I'm not sure what else they can really do with him. I mean, can he just be an opening match guy for the next one or two years when he when he comes back? I mean, you're guaranteed to get a great match out of him. But again, for somebody from Japan, 
loose grasp of the English language. If they do try and put him in upper mid-card main event angles, he's just going to get destroyed by Kevin Nash. So yeah, I think he's probably reached his ceiling, which is a shame because he's probably might might well be my absolute wrestler of the year so far. Tom, same question. Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm, I, I echo um, Rory's thoughts in that really there is a glass ceiling for a guy like Ultimate Dragon. And, and you know, in any, in any promotion, in any time period, you always have guys that put on really good matches. You, they're reliable. You know they're going to get the crowd pumped. They, in, in a way, he's the perfect um, pay-per-view opener guy. He's going he's gonna to get everyone pumped. There's, there's going to be a, a, a standard set that people are going to need to follow, but often don't in WCW's world. Um, but it, 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 there is a limit to it because, you know, I, I would compare him against someone like Rey Mysterio, um, who, who fights a similar, you know, he's a similar size, very high, high energy, lots of, lots of, um, inter, lots of complex interworked uh, sequences, good, good, good in the air, etc. However, Rey Mysterio can talk um, and... Ultimate Dragon can't. We, we never see him do it because, as, as Rory says, the, the, the language barrier is there. So, I, I, and what I would say as well is that I'm interested to see what they can do with Nagata because obviously it's the first time we've seen him. But again, just touching on something that Rory said, I'm interested to see. Like, imagine him in a match against someone like Chris Benoit. That'd be that'd be a great match. That that'd really come. That would be a genuine. Uh, you, you know, some some matches feel like a real fight, and you, and you you can imagine it actually happening for real, even if within kayfabe you don't know that it's not real. But yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, Dragon maybe maybe the the injury to his arm is what's to, what's to explain here. Not that it's a new thing where they haven't really been using him very well, uh, or clearly what the plan is with him. But um, maybe a few months out, it, it will help him to come up with something to to, to do with him because you can't just have him putting on great matches all the time. Because otherwise, he's going to get bored of it, and I guess the fans will eventually. But he's great. He's such a good worker. Man, I need to see Chris Benoit and Ultimo Dragon now. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but yes, that, like that, that could be a match if they if they gave them enough time. I, I suspect Benoit would lay it in and Dragon go, all right. If this is how we're going to do it, then fuck, I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll follow suit. That could be really good. But yeah, it, it's you know the match was really good. I think Nagata they've got a, a a good guy to have around. I just think Dragon has has proven himself that he can get over. Um, you know, and I know it's difficult with angles and stories. I know it's difficult with politics and everything else and. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I just think they could be doing more with him. I think he's better than an opening match act. Um, that there are there are two dozen guys WCW have either directly under contract or they use very regularly that could be in that spot that could do I don't want to say could do what Dragon could do, because then I'm defeating my own point, but could could fulfil the doing really entertaining shit in the opening match spot that Dragon seems to be in a lot. And Dragon could be further down the card in something a bit more serious and something a bit more meaningful, having the best match of the night, um, you know, against bigger names. I guess would be where I'd like them to go. Yeah. Um, But for for me, it it speaks to him and it speaks to Mysterio that they haven't identified those two guys as two guys worth protecting, I guess is what I would say. Mm. Yeah, no, I was just going just to add, I, I think within they're in a bit of a toxic environment, really, in WCW, because there are so many, as we know, and we've talked about before, big names who are, I'm, I should be in the main event, I should be, in, I should be involved in this storyline, so many opinions, so many egos, a guy like Ultimo Dragon very easily gets lost and, and gets washed away um, on, the, on the undercard, you could, you could easily put him in a tag, a tag team. 
and make it, you know, you could have the tag matches, would, would you know they would be pushing up to being the best matches on the card, just because he and, you know, potentially put him in a tag with, put him in a tag team with Rey Mysterio, something like that, and it'd be great. Or even have Rey Mysterio on the other team, and you could have them doing all the great spots and all the electric stuff in a tag team with the other stuff that they can't do. But I just, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't get that, that feeling, that's where we're going, like I say, the injury won't help either, but... We join Mark Madden backstage interviewing Disco Inferno for the WCW website. Disco says he can't punch her, he can't kick her. Cheerleaders don't belong on the field, a woman's place belongs in the home. Jacqueline rocks up, vaults over the table and chases after Disco who legs it. Steve's in the crowd with Kidman and the rest of the Ravens guys. We'll move on next to Chris Jericho versus Gado. Today there's a great job filling in on Gado's background. Jericho rolls out of the hammerlock and sends Gato to the floor, who jaw drags with the crowd. To be fair, if you're not going to boo a guy dressed entirely in yellow, then when are you? Gato sends Jericho over the top. Jericho skillfully hangs on, uses his arm, and then backflips back into the ring. Gato sorts that out by just sending him back over the top again. Gato, who is not skinny, gets hit with back-to-back powerbombs by Jericho, who manages to deadlift him. That looked really, really good. Gato's going over the knee. He has for a properly hateable look a smug bastard with a shit bleach blonde head cut. This is all compliments, by the way. I think Gato's brilliant after one match, but there we are. Jericho and Gato end up on the top rope. Jericho, Jericho goes for a super Frankensteiner. He doesn't make it work. He under-rotates by around 100 degrees, lands straight on his head, and somehow he's absolutely fine. Uh, he even manages to get in a cover for a two count, um, but the match carries on. Gato comes off the top, misses a splash. Jericho puts in the line tamer, and Gato quickly taps. Tom? Hmm. Yes. Um, interesting to hear what you said there, Bob, because obviously the, 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 the match has many, many facets, but the talking point is the botch of the uh, Super Frankenstein from the top rope. To me, I rewatched it two or three times, and to me, I thought it was Gato's fault. Because he looked stiff as a bean. And we know within the world of, of, of uh, pro, pro wrestling and uh, being sports entertainment, um, it's not the locking of the legs on the neck that actually makes people tumble over. It's them doing a somersault. And but what doesn't. were they trying to do here? Was Gato actually meant to reverse the move or was Jericho meant to pull it no. off? That's the bit I can't I, work out. I think he was meant to pull it off. That's certainly right. how I felt. Because if you, look, if you look at the way Jericho lands, he goes back and he does his back somersault as in to say, why haven't you followed me? And Gato was almost like a um, like a, a dead weight from the top rope, just sort of falls forward. And the way Jericho landed was horrible. It was real like one of those, you, you gasp when you see it. Because you think, oh shit, that clearly wasn't supposed to happen. Um so, but it, but but I, I I sort of know what you mean because I had to watch it a few times to think well whose fault exactly was it because Jericho's movement did did look a bit he looked a bit stiff as well it didn't look quite as fluent as a, as a as, sorry as fluid as it should do um, but I, I mean other than that we could talk about that forever but it's really worth checking out um, it was actually it was actually a good match um, Gredo was sorry Gedo was uh, he I, I went up and down in my opinion of him I thought at some points he looked really good and some points I, I thought he looked um, uh, like he, he's quite green, um, the, but there was a really a couple of not, really nice sequences. There was a, a knee breaker from the um, from a shoulder press that um, Gello did, which was really nice. And those power bombs you mentioned that Jericho did with a death lift, uh, deadlift looked really good. Um, and it was a good finish. Um, you know, he locked in the line tamer, and it was a tight one. And at the end, there was, Jericho had blood on him, but I couldn't quite work out where, where that had come from. But there were there were a few spots in here where you just thought, okay someone's annoyed at the other one here. And I got the impression that it was Jericho that was annoyed um, for, 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 for whether that was the botch or something else. I don't know. But it, it, it wasn't great, but it was interesting because of the spot we mentioned and because it was actually, it was a decent match. Um, but it didn't, it felt really 
sort of awkward and a bit and a bit all over the place. But it was it was a good one. Roy. Yeah, I thought it was quite amusing that uh, our friend Mike today was doing his best to put up on commentary how well these two knew each other, and yet for me they didn't really actually seem to be on the same page. This disappointed me a little bit, but I've, I've never seen the go, go there before. I'll get to him in a second. Uh, Jericho struggled to hold this match together. He just about managed to get away with it. Yeah, the, the only real talking point from the match was that horrible, horrible botch. Credit to Jericho for covering by going for a quick pin for, but I, credit to his I, neck for not just slapping <laughs> as well. I might remember that one going forward. Yes, it was uh, it was absolutely horrible. Um, and that's it. When we call these things. Maybe Vince McMahon's got a point when he calls anything going up to the, up to the top rope a high-risk manoeuvre. It is that for a reason. Yeah, I think we are going to remember Gado for a long time now. When I first saw him with his slight rotundness, let's say, and his bleached blonde hair, I thought, bloody hell, WCW have signed Paul Gascoigne, of all people. <laughs> and, uh... Wait, I must... His, his, <laughs> his finisher is the chair, Yeah. <laughs> I'd say what if he if he had gone out after fifth room and just grabbed a water bottle it would have all been over this show is a 10 out of 10 mark it off right there and so yeah I hope we see him again because I think he's going to be I think the phrase is perversely entertaining going forward but yeah a good match a lot of good stuff here say the, the double deadlift powerbomb that was mega um, yeah uh, I don't know how he managed to pull that off like the he hit the first powerbomb and I get you know get a bounce a bit um, but I, I, Jericho doesn't strike me as the strongest guy in the world, and Gato's heavy. Um, yeah. and he got him three quarters of the way up for a second yeah. power bomb and slammed him down like fair fucks. Impressive, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So as long as Jericho gets some of his move-to-move stuff down a bit better, I think he could go places because there's so many things he's capable of in the ring. Yeah, a, a fun match for <laughs> aesthetic reasons, let's say. It's... Um, no, no real complaints, but guys, just be careful, yeah? What a fucking brilliant look Ghetto has got. The guy's dressed in bright yellow, he's got short, bleached blonde hair, he's a bit fat, he's got like a chin that's about an inch and a half wide at the bottom, that his forehead is at the top, he looks like a smug fuck, he walks, he walks around at ringside like he owns the play, he's brilliant! Um, the match wasn't all that great, but, you know, I was kind of more mesmerised by his look than anything else. And Ghetto, in two minutes, did more to get over with me than Jericho has in about a year and a half. In terms of, I feel like he's already got more of a character, even if it is just smug bastard. Um, you know, smug bastard, you know, the, the middle part of a traffic light, that kind of thing, right? Um, but, you know, like, other than that, yeah, the botch was strange. Um, you know, I... Jericho landed just basically on the point of his head. Oh, like, you know, and it bent the wrong way. Like, it looked really bad. Like, I don't know how he got away with that. Um, otherwise, fine. Um, but I hope we see more of Ghetto. Um, and Jericho is slowly improving. Like, you know, in the in the list of things Jericho can do to get over, deadlifting a guy 100 pounds heavier than you are for a second powerbomb is a good start, but it is slow progress where he's concerned. But if he keeps winning, and if they start doing something with him, and if he can start to find a character, then who knows? But otherwise, see my comments on Jericho from any of the last, I don't know, eight WCW shows, but whatever. Move on, as Gene Oakland is backstage with Deborah McMichael, Mongo arrives and tells Deborah to give him back the diamond rings and the watches. 
Next up, it's Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Eddie Guerrero with the Cruiserweight title on the line and Mysterio's mask. Now, to fill in some backstory on this. So, this was a title versus mask match set up. And if you've been watching Nitro closely in the last couple of months, or even, well, even at all, you would have seen that there's been these little two or three minute segments every week involving Mike Tanay, who they flew to, to Mexico to do some back work on, on the history of Mexican wrestling and particularly Mexican wrestling masks. Now, also, they've got a lot of Mexican wrestling masks, and the idea is, well, if we want to arrest Mexican wrestlers who wear masks, and the idea is that if they want to start putting these things on the line, they've got to educate their audience that these things matter. Now, whether they've done a great job of that, I don't know, but I'll credit them for trying, and the segments with today have generally been very good. Um, but essentially, it was all building in part to this match with the idea that they were going to take Mysterio's mask off of him. Now, uh, um, it was told in the week leading up to the show, you are going to lose your mask. And he was not very happy about this. Uh, and in the hour leading up to the show, I believe he was told the same thing. But after some meetings with Mysterio, his agent, and Bischoff, and after, you know, Bischoff speaking with other people as well, he finally relented and changed the finish on the match. So there we are. Anyway, there's a bit of backstory for that. We'll, uh, we'll start with the mask. Mysterio is dressed all in purple as the Riddler, I think. He comes off of the second rope with an arm drag, then a crossbody block to the floor. Mysterio flips over the uh, over the ropes onto the apron, and Guerrero sends him quickly to the floor. The pace of this match is fast as Mysterio hits a drop kick and then goes for a handspring something, and Guerrero just catches him into a belly-to-back suplex. Mysterio's mask is on the line. He's not actually technically wearing one. The whole outfit's got the kind of mask built into it in the top half. Mysterio, after taking minutes minutes of punishment, counters a move into a spinning DDT. That was very nice. Grau drops, kicks into the floor, and then slams him into the guardrail. Grau is all over him here at this point with a backbreaker. Today reels off another list of history, and he just goes, Mike, tell me what you don't know. Grau sends Mysterio into the corner, then push him, puts him in the tree of woe. Guerrero goes into the corner Mysterio lifts himself out of danger and Guerrero slides into the ring post and Mysterio hauls him up and this time hits a big dive for the floor big pop for that then the match starts to get really really good Mysterio spins through the middle ropes scratches Guerrero in the head scissors then sends him to the floor he follows that by doing a somersault flancher onto the floor he lands on Guerrero's shoulders and as he does it rotates it backwards into a hurricane rana impossibly the best one-two I've ever seen on this show. Guerrero hits a big power bomb and does an overarch pin, but Mysterio kicks out. Mysterio downs Guerrero, comes off the top, and Guerrero catches him and hits a backbreaker. Guerrero goes to a raised edge, slash, splash mountain, splash outside his edge from the second rope. Mysterio counters into a reverse Irana and picks up the mat, uh, picks up the pin on the mat. And my notes finally just say, and breathe. Rory. Hang on a minute, Bob. And now the match starts to get really good. It was really good from what? the second the bell rang. <laughs> well, it was, but it, we got, but it got really, really good in those final few minutes, right? I mean, oh, yeah, it, it, it went from it went from properly good, but kind of WCW cruiserweight action we expect to oh shit for about three minutes. I'll give you that. Okay, I'll let you off. Yeah, um, the boy Meltzer again said when he in his write up of this match that this is about as good as professional wrestling can get. I'm going to argue with something he says a bit later on, but I am absolutely with him here. This was stunning, magnificent, all the superlatives you can think of. They wouldn't even come close to covering this match. This was two people at the absolute top of their game, not only doing everything that we know 
they are capable of, doing everything we didn't know they were capable of. It seems an affront to call them spots. They were just wonderful moves in match context. You've got Ray laying on the ground. And five seconds later, he's managed to move himself up, up onto the top rope, rotate 180 degrees, and hit an absolute inch-perfect spinning DDT. Incredible. And I said, it didn't just feel like a feat of athleticism. It felt like a move by somebody who doesn't want to lose his mask and wants to win a belt. Eddie played both a supreme dick heel, walking around hitting big, powerful moves at every opportunity, tearing out the mask, and looking like somebody who deserved to hold a belt. That absolutely astounding, greatest move I think we've ever seen in this project, which you rightly drew attention to there, Bob. I mean, a cannon, we see it move like a cannonball off the open. We see it quite a lot. And I reckon if Ray had just, Ray had just done that, he would have done it better than 100% of any other people. But the fact in the same movement, he managed to manoeuvre himself around into a Rana. And again... If, if, we, if we can give Guerrero a lot of credit for that move. Yeah, you've got to, of course, absolutely. As you say, so many, as um, Tom rightly said earlier, the guy receiving the move has still got to do so much work. And he had milliseconds to respond to that. And he took it like an absolute champ. Two minor, minor quibbles, which don't let down this match for me at all, but I've still got to mention them. A, the slight length, 13 minutes, was a tad short. So you could look at selling issues, but everything these guys did was perfect, so I'm going to let them off. And we have seen Splash mount it into a Rana for a finish before, but two quick things on that. A, as we now know, Ray didn't know he was winning the match until about half an hour before the show even went up, maybe even a bit sooner than that. I was going to say, yeah, if that. <laughs> and secondly, if you look at the way they got there, in kayfabe terms, that's not the move that Eddie was going for. I think he was going for a back suplex off the top, but Ray fought it, so they ended up in that position. So they just got everything right. So after you guys have hopefully rightfully waxed lyrical about this, everyone needs to press pause and just watch this match if you haven't already. It's an absolute must Five stars, supreme professional wrestling, and a reminder of why I put myself through so much of this shit. Wonderful. Now, I think now listeners are going to start to understand why we well start to understand why later on we're going to be so conflicted about this show, Tom. Yep. There are a few key ingredients um, that are required to make a great or even a classic match in pro wrestling. Uh, you need people involved that are at the top of their game. You need a crowd that are invested and excited to be there watching the match. You need a story behind the match. You can't just have moves and sequences and expect that to be to be great, even though it may look great. Um, for it to stand the test of time, it needs to have a story behind it. Uh, there needs to be the aforementioned move sequences and, and everything else that makes a good match a good match. It needs to have a decent finish. It needs to have a reason to exist. It need, basically, the, the point I'm getting at is that this match has all of that. Absolutely all of it. This is, um, without question, one of, if not the best matches I've seen this year, in 1997. Uh, I can't remember seeing such a, 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 a so impressive high-energy sequence of moves. Um, I really, I really, I was, I was flabbergasted. Because, I, I, to be, I'll be honest with you, I, I was with Bob a little bit in that when the match started, I thought, oh, wow, this is really good. I like the pace it started at. And I was sitting there with a sort of a, a smirk on my face, thinking, this is great. And then all of a sudden, I went, fuck me, this is going somewhere else. And it did. Um, and I think that's also a part of, uh, that's, you know, some of the greatest matches that, you, that you'll think of are like that. They, they start 
and they get they get you in, and they, they say, well, we're going to go at a pace here that you're, you might not be ready for, and then that gets your attention, and then they go, right, if you weren't ready for that, check this out, and then they step it up, and it goes into sixth gear, and you start thinking, good lord, like, how can they be pulling this off, and but, I mean, obviously, the, 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 the sequence you mentioned, um, the, uh, the somersault flip into the, the Harakaran or corkscrew thing, was, that, was, that was amazing. But the, there's a, the, key, the key things here for me is that, well, one of the key things for me is that Eddie Guerrero looks an absolute million bucks. He is just, I, I, he's, he's so good and he looks great and he looks so confident. Um, the, the, the commentary was good in this as well, like... There was, a, there was a point, like you, you mentioned it before, when they were talking about Rey Mysterio's mask, and they said, well, it's part of his costume, so if he's going to get it off, he may have to rip the whole thing off. And, and Heenan, being Heenan, goes, well, if, if he's got to do that, he'll have to. Because, because in your head, you think, oh, he's not going to rip the whole thing off, that's ridiculous. But Heenan go, he, the way Heenan thinks is, like, well, if he wants to win the match, he'll do that. And that's, that's a real like, little, little touch but keeps you invested in the story and makes you think, actually, yeah, he will, because if it means that much to him. Um, and, God, the... I, I sort of, I, I, can, I, can, I can see where Rory's coming from, <clears throat> excuse me, when he says that 13 minutes may be a little bit too short. But when something is so intense and at such a high pace, when you cut it, it's like, it's like you know, cutting the goose, cutting the, the head off the, the, golden, the, the, the goose that laid the golden egg. It's like, get it when it's at its best. And if it going on a couple of minutes more, there could have been a botch or there could have been something, or WCW could have thrown something in with their horrible booking that made you go, oh no, this didn't have that. It ended when it should have done for me. And it was non-stop. Like, there were so many nice sequences. Like, Eddie did this amazing pump-action backbreaker that I just I loved. Um, and that Moonsault DDT was amazing. And I just, ah, oh, it was just glorious. A glorious match to behold. I loved it. Uh, yeah, when you when you learn to drive, and, and in the UK we, we learn to drive properly, not like people in America that, that drive automatics because they're pussies. When you, when you learn to drive, as we would call the cars, and Americans would call driving a stick, you know, whatever. The, the clutch is one of the first things you have to get used to, right? I, I, don't worry, I'll go somewhere with this. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was going to say, should I get my highway code out or something? Well, I was going to say, well, we are doing a break after this, so you can have it now. If I just explain this analogy, we can come back and carry on. Um, but basically, like, when you learn to drive a... Uh, a, a car with a gearbox you you have to learn to use the clutch and you know and you you as you get used to it sometimes you you're not at the right point you're too low and sometimes you you pull it up you're too high and the whole thing fucking stalls and the reason i'm getting at is that a lot of wcw cruiserweight matches they try too much and when i talk about the clutch analogy it's like you, you pull it up too far and the whole thing stalls and we've seen cruiserweight matches before in wcw where they've tried too much in a short space of time and none of it gets over and you know, I, I, I don't you know, other than the the, the the spot with the you know, the, the somersault dive into the head scissors, I don't know if there was anything individually in this match that was anything we hadn't necessarily seen before in any other combination. There's been some ridiculous shit done by WCW Cruiserweights in the last eighteen months. But the point is when you pile it one on top of another on top of another, it goes too far and none of it sticks. And 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 that's that's been a problem of, of, of cruiserweight matches for me before. They didn't get, they didn't have this here, and and I think yeah, Rory said the match was was too short, and you said that the match was pretty good up until the point I went, and then it hit another gear to to, to crowbar in a second car reference. But I think had the match been a lot longer, it would have taken away from the stuff we were doing, and that's been one of my criticisms of these style of matches before as well, is that they do so much impressive shit, even when speed isn't an issue, it kind of becomes hard to believe. I think this match had just about the perfect balance. 
in the you know they you know and I think one of my criticisms of it was they had a lot of stipulations on the line, but I didn't feel they mattered that much. I felt like they needed to have done more to have built this match. They tried their best with the mass part. It doesn't help the cruiserweight title doesn't mean very much. Um, but I, I felt like from a thirteen-minute perspective, like you did, you wouldn't want that last three minutes stretched out across the thirteen minutes. You would have burned it out, and the match psychology wouldn't have made any sense. So they built the match and said, right, Guerrero, you're going to dominate most of these early guys. And the first seven or eight minutes were really fucking good. Let's be clear. Like I know I said it hit another gear when Mysterio started rallying, but Guerrero doing this stuff was really, really good. And I think one of the Best combinations of these matches we've seen in WCW has often involved Ultimate Dragon, to go back to a point I made earlier, was when it's the the cruiserweights and the Mexicans, although I know both these guys are American, but the guys that have wrestled a lot in Mexico, wrestling a American style using Mexican moves. I think Dragon's done that once or twice and had really, really good matches where it's more of a focus on selling, more of a focus on storytelling, and more of a focus on making your spots count. And I think they got that just about right here. And, you know, Guerrero, who's done a really good job being fucking good wrestler, but also a heel, built, you know, is over as a heel in front of the fans. So he can do his heel stuff, and yet it's still really impressive. And Mysterio, and to a point, it's a free hit. The guy's like five foot two. Like, it's not difficult to build him as an underdog. It's really, really good. And so they built throughout the match. And then Mysterio starts fighting. And it's like, it, but it wasn't, it wasn't Mysterio spending three minutes trying to jam in as much as he could. It was Mysterio spending three minutes doing about three or four really good spots. And shock horror, come the end of the match, they all stuck. And that's been my big problem with Cruiserweight match over the, over the last 18 months, that they throw everything at the wall, none of it matters. Yeah. When you get the balance right, when you hit the clutch in the right spot, no, it actually moves, right? And that's kind of the point I'm getting at, is that these two got the match just about right. I don't think it was a brilliant match. You know, like I was saying to Dan earlier in the week, like I, you know, I don't think I've ever rated a match five stars, and I may never. Um, but to, this was a fantastic match in a lot of respects. It didn't, you know, I, so I, I think for me what was missing, as much as the mass was on the line and much as the title on the line the other way, for me the thing that stopped this being a fascinating match was probably that it didn't mean more, that this wasn't Mysterio and Guerrero going for a world title or in a feud that built up over six months or in a match that was in the semi-main event of a pay-per-view or even, dare I say, the main event. Not that I think WCW were ever going to do that. That for me was probably all this was lacking. The actual match itself was about as good as you're ever going to see. I don't know, Roy, that it needed four or five more minutes. Input on any of that. Yeah, um, I think you've both made very good points about the match length there. I would not want this to become a spot fest. I'm just saying, maybe it's just me being greedy because I, I loved every last millisecond of it. I wanted a whole lot more. It's, um, I can't really argue with, uh, with any of those points. Other than to say, you know, I often can mark things a bit harshly on this show. I've actually given four matches five stars this year alone. So there you are. <laughs> what was the other one? It would not uh, I'll tell you what they are. They, they are. they were Owen and Bulldog uh, from Berlin. They were oh, that right. match at WrestleMania. And uh, there's a match on another volume of this month's podcast that you might want to tune in to find out what right. that is. Okay. Okay. I thought you were going to say the... Uh... Well, we haven't taped that yet. That's why I hadn't heard that bit. But yes. No, right. I see. I see what you're saying. Tom, any more before we, uh, before we move on? Yeah, no, I, I think... Um... 
you're, I think you're, you're possibly verging on being overly critical, Bob. Just, 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 just verging on I, it because that, because that that is not something ever anyone has ever said about me. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's a first for this one. I know. Are you are you are you, are you here, Tom? No, yeah, yeah. Well, this is my, this is my first. This is my first merry-go-round. But no, the the, the, the point I was going to make is is that something something else that I didn't mention here that is really adds to the to my love of this match is. Eddie Guerrero is one of those guys that he, he, he blurs the lines between cruiserweight and above. He looks like a guy that could quite easily step up into being, uh, you know, contending for the heavyweight title. But, you know, you wouldn't even need to put any extra pounds on him. He's got that look. And I think that adds something to a cruisermate match that something like Ultimo Dragon versus Rey Mysterio wouldn't have. Because you're like, they're both very quick and they're both very talented and it's very high paced. But the power that he has, and he, he can do it all. And I, I just, this is the best match I think I've seen Eddie Guerrero in. I think, to, well, to, uh, to, to date at this point, I, I, I haven't seen him in a better match. And I haven't seen him look better either. Um, so it's worth watching just for, the, for the, 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 the glory of Eddie Guerrero. And obviously that's not taking anything away from Rey Mysterio either. Um, but he, he looks fantastic. And it's, I, I, I loved it. I'm, I'm going to stop now. Yeah, Guerrero's got a lot going for him. He's got size. He's, you know, he's big enough, as you say, Tom, where he, he doesn't have to work cruiserweight. I mean, you know, Mysterio, you know, the, <laughs> I'm assuming they're going to pay off Mysterio and Kevin Nash at some point. Or, or was that literally just Kevin Nash just burying the guy for 90 seconds? I don't know. Um, Mysterio is going to have a credibility issue if he goes up against guys that are much bigger. Um, Guerrero, I don't think, will. Uh, and the other thing Guerrero's got going for him is he, he's able to wrestle this great style and be a heel. Um, you know, if, if I'm a, if I'm Dallas Page or I'm Lex Luger or I'm Giant and I'm thinking I, I want a heel to work with that isn't NWO, I'd be saying, yeah, get, give me that guy. Um, mm. You know. And, the, and the, uh, just say, Bob, as well, the, the amazing thing from this, from Eddie Guerrero's perspective, is he lost. He's yes. fucking lost, and you could you could you could take him out here and put him up in a main event title heavyweight match, and nobody would go. Well, hang on a second, he lost at the pay per view, and, and that just shows that tells you everything you need to know about this match for me. No, uh, right, we will go for a break. Uh, obviously, as listeners, you won't hear this, um, but yes, suffice to say that when we come back, the uh, the, uh, the the show's going to take a bit of a left turn as we uh, when we come back. Oakland says there's a click in WCW. There's a rumour that they may be adding one more member to their organisation, the usual Oakland bullshit. We got a black and white pro from Hogan and Bischoff. Bischoff looks about 10 years younger when he's clean-shaven. They don't say all that much. I think Bischoff says, if Sting appears tonight, we want control of Nitro or something like that. Um, you, you know, Sting shows up tonight. So I don't, you know, that, that never really goes anywhere. But they're, they're basically leading to the idea that when they launch a new Thursday show, NWO is going to take control of Nitro because that's worked so successfully so far. We've got next to Steve Mongo McMichael versus, well, Deborah McMichael's special guest opponent, Alex Wright. Woo! <laughs> of all the fucking weird combinations, I put that right near the top. Mongo plays for the crowd. Big test for Alex Wright this match. See if he can get a good match out of someone like Mongo. Mongo hits a body slam, right wins a lockup. Mongo looks a bit surprised. Mongo does an arm ringer and then a standing elbow. Right comes out of the corner with the spin wheel kick. Just as I was about to call this match technically fine, I seem to fuck something up. As Wright goes to Tombstone Mongo, Mongo attempts to roll out of it and they basically just collapse and they have to reset. Still, Mongo hits a Tombstone. Well, it was all going well. So, out comes Goldberg. 
as you do. We'll discuss Goldberg a bit more later. He gets in the corner. Deborah gets on the uh, apron, goes up the ring steps and distracts the ref. Goldberg gets in one call up. Mongo's in the number. Goldberg charges towards Mongo and spears him. And they land right next to the referee. And, you know, Mongo must be 260. Goldberg's probably a little bit heavier. So, you know, I'm going to say if, if, if 500 pounds of bodies fall within three feet of you, you're probably going to fucking notice it. So, the ref's still being distracted by Deborah at this point. Goldberg gets up. He picks Mongo up, and he picks him up for his jackhammer suplex slam thing where he kind of holds him in the air and then drops him into kind of a Uranage-type thing or, a, or close enough, right? And he almost, Mongo almost clips the referee going up for the move. He doesn't quite, but he almost does. The ref is still being distracted. Goldberg hits the jackhammer right next to the referee. Again, 550 pounds, crashing right down to the mat next to the referee. The ref is kind of half turning around while all this is going on, waiting for his cue. He looks around at least twice. He's like, oh shit, it's still going on. So Goldberg does the move. He walks over to Wright, who's completely fucking spark out from the tombstone. Picks up Wright, walks him across the ring, drops him on top of the on top of the sparked out Mongo, dives out of the ring. Deborah then gives him the ref his cue. The ref turns round and counts the three. After the match, Deborah gives Mongo, uh, Deborah gives Goldberg Mongo's Super Bowl ring. Goldberg then spears and jackhammers right because he's basically doing the Steve Austin thing where he just attacks everybody and everyone cheers. And, you know, quite frankly, I, you know, he, he could attack about half the people on this show and I think he got cheered. Um, Tom, that is probably the most convoluted finish I think I've ever seen. <sighs> yeah. Um, so it, it, it looked even worse than I think I described it. It looked really shit. For something that all could have been solved just with a ref bump. Some, yeah, something that I don't think you, you sold adequately in, in, your, um, in your comments there is the referee looked right at Goldberg. He did. He did. When he dropped Mongo on Alex Wright, he looked at him. You could physically and visibly see that the referee was looking at Goldberg, and he actually was when he dropped Mongo on top of um, Alex Wright. Um, that what I mean. That made a match that really was really unnecessary, boring. It it made it a little bit more interesting just because you look at it well, uh, earlier on. Bob mentioned that when you when there's a few moments in the show when you just literally go, "What the fuck?" This is the first one for me. I, I screamed. He's looking at him. Just just it's it's beyond belief. And the, the noise and the ring is shaking, as you said, Bob. Mongo and Goldberg are they're big lads. This is not something where you, if there were, you know, two ladies in there or whatever, you might go, oh, well, they don't weigh much. We're not going to hear it. We're not going to, you know, if we don't see it, it's quite believable. It went on for far too long. It was so obvious. It was absolutely ridiculous. And um, I felt so, sorry for Alex Wright. Now, the comedy moment of this match, uh, obviously, is, is when, it, when, when it started and who's Deborah's secret guy going to be? And Alex Wright walks out. I pop because I love Alex Wright. And seeing him dance always, always makes me happy. And then... The comedic part of it was when they showed Raven sitting in the crowd and he had this absolute deadpan look on his face. And it's basically like electronic dance, Europop versus punk goth or whatever it is that, that Raven is. It's like two musical stars and it's, it's completely stereotypical of each of them. But so it's really that, funny. It really made Raven, me laugh. If they put Raven in a feud with Alex Wright based on their musical interest, it will make more sense than putting Goldberg in a feud with Mongo based off the fact that they were both in the NFL. Um, <laughs> that was, that was, yeah, you know, I'd like that, actually. 
we'll, we'll come to that in a I bit. Can get, I can get I into that. Think... Yeah, no, and also I was getting on to say that the uh, the spear that Goldberg did to um, Mongo. I mean, we know Mongo is about as you know talented as a hairbrush, but he he did not sell that at all. He lumped to the floor. It was dreadful. It, oh God! I mean, considering what came before it. This was where I talked about going from being fucking hell, I can't believe how good this is, to being, oh my God, it's WCW. Rory? I think we've got a new philosophical question to add to our list. If a Goldberg spears a Steve McMichael in the ring and the referee doesn't see it, does it make a sound? Obviously <laughs> not. <laughs> oh my goodness me, that's just so plain stupid. And that's the, again, it's the only thing I can think about about this match. I... I've forgotten the previous six minutes. Well, I only watched it a few days ago. Apart from that, completely not to screw up with the tombstone. It's just ludicrous. There's, you know, there's, there's a bloody war going on behind the referee, and he's more interested in Deborah maybe holding a ring for about uh, one or two minutes. The referee distraction. Okay, we see it a lot in the main two promotions. WCW go to that well a load, and it's getting beyond tiresome now. You begin to think. In kayfabe terms, it must be said, why would WCW employ these people as referees when they're just so plain stupid? You know, keep your eye on the ball, so to speak. And it was just lame. McMichael didn't even sell the spear particularly well. It's like he'd never seen a move like that before in his life, which is probably true. I don't want to see a feud based on what may or may not have happened in the NFL 12 years ago. This is a waste well, of Alex Wright. Nothing happened, right? This is this is what I don't That's get. Like, there's there's no rivalry between Mongo and Goldberg. Mongo's a two-time All-Pro winner, and he's a former Super Bowl winner. Goldberg's a guy that didn't really do a lot on the Atlanta Falcons for two years. That's it. There's so no I'm not gonna, here. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on uh, on the NFL at all because I'm certainly not. But Goldberg, as uh, America, he's, he was recently a, a player. Yes, was he? Because obviously no, Michael won in the mid eighties. I believe he was an Atlanta Falcons squad member in 94-95. Oh, well, there you go then. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah so there's, there's no few there. There's, there's 10 years past. Uh, so he, that's played, just... he played some other non-NFL stuff, and I think he was a member of another roster briefly as well a couple of years before. Oh, yeah, he, he's been around, but, you know, injuries and other things, he never, he never achieved anything of any notoriety. Like, I don't think Bill Goldberg being a... Being uh, being signed to WCW, I don't think they signed him for his NFL because he was in the NFL. They signed him because he was an NFL player with the physical attributes that come with that. Like, there's no feud here. Like, what's Goldberg pissed off at Mongo for? They've sort of, they've sort of now artificially created a feud by Goldberg being given given that ring. But again, who cares about that? It's just but Michael won the Super Bowl. Goldberg hasn't. You know, that's all you need to know. Just quickly get back to the match. A waste of Alex Wright in the sense that. He is talented as he can be in the ring, and he's done some good matches since turning heel. I still don't think he's adept enough at the long game. He's not really somebody who can carry. And as much as Mongo has got a bit better over the last year or so, he still needs to be in the ring with somebody who could walk him through to A to Z. And Alex Wright is not that particular guy. So yes, this was just a mess. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm chuckling at it. So you know, not a complete disaster. But it was, but you know what I mean. The, the the finish of this match is preposterous. <laughs> yes. um, and again, it's like as I say, it just spark the ref out. The ref goes down for a ref bump. You can do all of this, and you don't. You know, you, you, Mongo. They 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 try and do the tombstone counter. Mongo as he picks up right, knocks out the ref. 
Mongo tombstones right, outrun Goldberg, does the shit. He does everything he needs to do to, to, to Mongo. He puts right on top of Mongo, and then the ref comes to and counts the three. And you know, and then we're just having a discussion about just the, the, the mechanics of the really shitty feud between Goldberg and Mongo that makes no sense, and everything else is fine. Instead, they try and do this distraction for what must have been about 45 seconds. And for Goldberg, from the time Goldberg got in the ring <clears throat> to setting, setting up Mongo, hitting the spear, getting him back up, hitting the jackhammer, getting up from that, walking across the ring, picking up right, putting him back over, putting him on, and then getting out of the ring. <clears throat> it was a long time. And it was just preposterous. And the match was before that was just about passable. As I said, it was kind of an interesting test for Wright. He's had a lot of very good matches here. And both these guys improved a lot. But it was barely competent. Um, and, and again, we talk about weird pairings. Mongo and Wright is a really odd pairing. Um, Wright and Deborah is a really odd pairing. Um, but, uh, yeah, like the, the the finish will... You know, I mean, it reminds me of that finish in... 93 in, uh, I think it might have been, uh, it might have been Havoc actually, or Fall Brawl, involved Ric Flair. Um, and there was like a, you know, they, they, they had a second referee at ringside in case there was a ref bump with the first one. And there was a ref bump, and the second referee got straight in the ring, and, and, and Flair just knocked him out. Um, or the other guy did. And then they just had this really convoluted thing and there was this, like, these pair of brass knuckles that are stagehand moves so they weren't where they should have been and Frax had to bring them back. Th- this was that level of, really, what the hell were you thinking? Um, and yeah, I, like my bigger problems are, you know, I think they're going to do Mongo and Goldberg next month and we'll discuss that a little bit more later. Um, you know, if, it, if it's as short as Goldberg's other matches, then it'll be fine. Um but uh, it, 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 it's it's weird that they, they've just gone. Well, they were both in the NFL. Well, yes, but one of them's a, a potential. I don't know whether he's a potential Hall of Famer or not. The other one was a guy that was there for five minutes and disappointed and had injuries. There's no comparison there. There's no feud there. There's no beef. Why would there be a beef? Like I don't know. Anyway. All a bit strange. Yeah, Goldberg's got Mongo Super Bowl ring now, for what that's worth. Uh, we get another black and white promo backstage with Savage and Liz. And we move on next to Disco Inferno versus Jacqueline in a non-title match. This is all legit, by the way. As in, the Las Vegas Athletic Commission said, we are not going to sanction a man versus a woman in a wrestling match for a title. So they couldn't do it. Um, but anyway, the the reason all this happened, and I, I believe, I mean, it's very difficult to tell where Abyss was concerned. It's possible they just said, look, you know, this will be interesting if you just, if we pretend to fire you for not putting over Jacqueline, we can do it in six months and it'll all make sense. Um, but I believe the condition of Disco returning was he agreed to put over Jacqueline on a show. So they couldn't do it for the tar, but they could still do the match. So they're calling it unsanctioned. Not that it really means anything. But anyway, so it was a man versus a woman in a non-title match. Disco starts by running away, the announcer trying to work out what he can do if he can't hit her. Much strolling, not as much heat as they are hoping for, but Jacqueline finally starts chasing him. She hits a sunset flip for a two, Disco hits a drop toe hole, which gets quite a nice reaction. Very good, actually. Jacqueline takes hold of what I can only describe as her enormous breasts, although she was just kind of readjusting her outfit. The crowd really did pop for that. Disco gets back in the ring and Jacqueline unloads on him. Disco does some crossovers and leapfrogs. He goes for a hip toss. Jacqueline kind of blocks it and then drags his legs either side of the ring post, which gets a big reaction because, obviously, well, she doesn't have testicles. Uh, she does have balls, though. She hits a suplex onto the floor. She hits a spinning DDT into the ring for a big pop. 
Jacklin comes off the top. Disco rolls through for a crossbody and reluctantly pins her, but she kicks out. As Disco goes nuts at the referee, Jacklin rolls him up and wins it with a three. Tom? In a match where Bob's summary uses the words breasts and testicles, you may think that this is interesting and worth your time. However, I have news to the contrary for you. This was horrible. I won't talk about it for long. Um, It went nearly 10 minutes, and I certainly won't talk about it for that long. There was about a minute's worth of action in it. Um, The commentators were bored senseless. As Bob mentioned, there was a section with Jackie's chest that got more excitement and, and, and analysis from the commentary team than anything else in the whole match. There was an outside suplex. There was a spinning DDT. Uh, there was a crossbody. There was a lot of running. Uh, there was nothing else. And I never want to see or hear from this match again. Roy. Okay, one thing before I get started. What jurisdiction do athletic commissions have on non-sports? What, what, how, how, could, how, could they, how could they say that this shouldn't be a title match in a, a fictional well, profession? Pro wrestling is regulated, I believe. Yes, it is. I mean, yes, my knowledge of this is not brilliant, but it is regulated, sort of like boxing is. Yeah, um, it has to be sanctioned, yeah. Yeah, as, as I understand it. And so, yeah, I'm guessing they, do, I'm guessing they just say... You know, we don't allow... And admittedly, Roy, I think the point you're kind of getting at is that, well, if, if they didn't sanction the match, how could they even do it? Like, the, exactly. the part here... The important part isn't the title, it's the match taking place. Um, but I, I don't know what a match being unsanctioned in this context means. Um, but obviously, you know, they wanted to do it for the title, although I think in some respects it probably works out better than they didn't, because I don't know what Jacqueline carrying a men's title around really would have done for anyone long term, other than probably to kill the credibility of the title. Um, you know, the TV title, not, you know, admittedly, we could probably do a get rid of the TV title, we don't really need it. Um, but I, I think that might have saved the same. But no, Roy, I don't know why they weren't able to make it a title match, but they were otherwise still a match. I don't know what calling it unsanctioned means in this context. Could know that Vince McMahon would go around to every uh, every state he could think of saying, oh yes, this is just sports entertainment, so he could get around all those uh, whys and wherefores and red tapes. But So you'd think WCW would have been aware of that, but uh, but there you go for WCW, I guess. Yeah, um, I say, and I'm glad this match wasn't for the title, as it turned out. I'm not as low, low on this as Tom or, or Mr. Meltzer. It was too long, and it's probably not really the sort of thing you want to see on pay-per-view. I think it probably, because it was more angle than match, you could have done this on TV. But I thought it told a simple but uh, well-developed story. Disco Inferno is a bad guy, but he is not so bad that he is going to get into a position where he's got to hit a woman. But it's so he keeps stalling because he can't bring himself to do it, and that just gets him hated by the crowd even more. So you can see this moral dilemma playing out before your eyes. And so when he eventually did get back in the ring, the only move he could hit was, in the context of pro wrestling, a relatively uh, pain-free one, which is a a cross-body block. Do I buy Jacqueline beating him? Although I must say, the two big moves she hit, they they look fine and Disco sold them like a champ suplex and the DDT. I'm never the world's biggest fan of roll-up finishes, but maybe you could say he was distracted or he was still, in, again, in kayfabe, feeling the effects of the DDT from a few seconds earlier. Maybe I'm reading a bit too much into it. I'm glad this wasn't for the title because nothing you could do with Jacqueline holding a belt. But this was a simple story, well told. So I have 
few issues with it, but it's not the sort of thing you could do month after month, and you shouldn't. But for what it was, it was fine. I liked it. Um, Fucking hell. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that puts me in, in the minority, whether it makes me an idiot. I, like, I, like, Disco's got really good timing. Like, there was that match with, um, it was I think it was Dean Malenko this year, but Disco actually kind of got fans behind it. Was he kind of rallied and then fought his instincts to kind of dance between moves? And the crowd really got into it. He's got really good timing. The crowd really were into this. Given how little happened, it was the match in a bit where nothing happens for ages and the crowd really kind of fall off. Um, but the crowd were into it. Like, any move where you can do a drop toe hold and get a pop in 1990, any match where you can do a drop toe hold and get a pop in 1997 is something of note. Uh, I agree with Rory. Like, I, I, I liked it. I, I don't particularly want to see it again. Like, as in, I liked it for novelty value more than anything else. Um, but as a one-off, I, you know, I thought they made it work. Um, you know, the crowd were reacting to things they don't normally react to. Seeing Disco's confliction was quite fun to watch. Um, and yeah, it, it went on a couple of minutes too long. I don't think there's really a doubt about that. Um, but it's like the whole thing with Nick Patrick last year against Chris Jericho. Occasionally, if you have a match like this, where you don't do it too often, occasionally it'll stick and people will remember it. And I think people will remember this match. Um, you know, again, you don't want to turn it into, you know, the comedy hour. You don't want to turn it into a circus. But I think they got this about right. Um, you know, like it, to, to me, I think they're both more over as a result, um, which is always the, the litmus test, really, of whether a match was good. Did both guys get over as a result? Yes, I think they probably did. I mean, I watched this and kind of thought, fuck me, you couldn't have built a women's division around Jacqueline? Um, that was that was kind of what I was thinking, but who knows? Um, but yeah, I would be in a hurry to do it again. I, I don't think... I, I don't think 1998 is ready for a lot of women versus men matches. I don't think there's many combinations that would work. Um, but this, they just about made it work. And it made Jacqueline look tough. Um, you know, I mean, she's she's wrestled with Benoit before, admittedly as a kind of side act. Um, you know, and God, I hope they don't do that much. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think Disco was the right opponent. And it was a mental match. It wasn't that bad. Um, but yeah, don't do it again. Uh, I think I was higher at the most, let's say that. Moving on next to Kurt Henning versus Ric Flair. Flair just steams out to the ring, as he perhaps should. Pulls Henning out and attacks him with hard chops. Henning is still in Flair's old robe. Flair gets a hold of it and puts it on. He puts in a strut after a chop and the crowd go wild. That being said, otherwise not the volcanic heat you might expect for this match. Both men go down selling. Henning levels in with a right and Flair just about kicks out. Not a great deal going on until Henning grabs a chair and attempts to smash it into Flair's head by the ring post out of the, 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 uh, the cage door last month. Flair gets his head out of the way this time though. Henning grabs his title and leaves. Flair drags him back. Henning lays a title in the middle of the ring, then shakes for a perfect, we can't call it perfect, plex. Flair counters, hits a suplex, but Henning missed the belt. I can't tell if that was the plan. You can tell the belt's going to be part of the finish because it's been in the ring for about 60 seconds and the ref hasn't touched it. Flair puts Henning in a tree of woe. He then puts the belt across of Henning's face. Uh, he, then, uh, he then kicks Henning in the head. They tried to call it retribution for last month. Hennick tried to sell it as about as best he could, but it didn't look great. Flair calls uh, the ref. Sorry, calls for the DQ. Flair then decks the ref, and a series of refs comes out as to the NWO, and the whole thing breaks down. Rory. Yeah, I went into <clears throat> excuse me. I went into this and would have been a trepidation because Hennick has been very rusty since he joined. 
yes, he had that match with Benoit at the beginning of this month, but Benoit. And Flair has been playing the hits brother in the ring for at least two years, possibly three. I thought they got this about right, actually. It wasn't a Matt Classic by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't a patch on their, say, Loser Leaves Raw match they had back in January 93. But it got its point across well that Flair was hot about being wronged by Hennig, like I spoke about earlier with Hennig turning his back on the horseman. That is something you just don't do. So if Flair comes down, he's running to the ring. He's no, no rogue, no Also Sprax Arathustra, no, no Dolly Burst, just getting in there to try and kick ass. Now, I appreciate that level of detail. There wasn't much going on in the match, Bob. You're, you're right. There were some dead spots. I don't think Hennig, I don't think Hennig is there again yet. Although some of his selling is at least starting to approach his Super Bowl 1990, 1991 levels, where he would even make Texas Tornado's discus punch look like hell on earth. So he's, he's getting there. Whether he'll be able to go all the way back, I'm not sure. Yeah, the finish was. Fairly ambitious, actually, and fairly original, locking somebody in a tree of woe, putting a title belt up against their face and then trying to kick it and say, it didn't look, it didn't really look like it hurt, especially when you compare last month to having a cage door slammed in your head three or four times. This wasn't really retribution, it's not even on the same scale, but again, I see what they were going for and I reckon this feud might continue it's going to go, end with Flair going over. So, yeah, I'm prepared, much as, as much as undoubted flaws from a technical world perspective, I'm going to give it a pass. Um, so before I go into my thoughts on, on the actual match, I just wanted to, to touch on something that actually I, I wanted to mention earlier, but it still applies here, is the, the commentators throughout a number of the matches won't stop talking about uh, Hollywood Hogan. Oh, gosh, yeah. uh, and it really, really annoyed me. But in this match, it annoyed me more than anything else. Don't, don't um, watch the final 45 minutes of the final Nitro of the month, because that was all they talked about. Well, the, yeah. the, the second they announced... I don't know, Joey, has stuff here. The second they announced the contract signing during the commercial for Assault on Devil's Island, during the, the, the beginning of the final hour of Nitro, the final Nitro of the month, I, 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 I'd be surprised if they literally mentioned anything else. It was just all, it was Shivani said about 15 times, this is the most important thing we've ever seen. Um, yeah, like, the, they know who pays the bills, let's say that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, for, for me, sometimes when, when it's in a match like Mongo versus Alex Wright, they're talking about it, you can, you sort, you can sort of understand it because they want to keep people interested and dropping names like Hollywood Hogan makes people sort of listen, I guess. But in a match like this, you've got um, two of the absolute all-time best, in my opinion. Um, they're not at the best of their, of their careers at this point, but that's still, it, to me, it feels like they're almost pissing on pro wrestling history um, by speaking over it. And this is early on in the match as well, when the match starts with a, a, a real high level of, in, of uh, intensity. Like the guys mentioned, Flair comes legging it down. Um, and after the promo he cut on Nitro, you get the impression he's desperate to, to beat the shit out of Kurt Hennig. And, 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 and that works. Um, and yeah, so getting into the match then, other than that, uh, I, I liked it. I, I did like it. I, I think that it was verging on being better than it was, but it never really got there because, like the guy said, Kurt Hennig, is, he's, he's getting back into it, the ring rust is wearing off, and he like he, he was selling Flair's chops uh, to, a, to a point where you were like, ah, that's Kurt Hennig that we know. 
but both of them, I think, at this point in their career, have lost a step due to age, ring rust, whatever. Because don't forget, Flair's been out as well here, not for as long, obviously. But it's not like they've been wrestling every week. Although you know, this is a pay per view; they probably wrestled the week before. But my point being, together on a pay per view card, the two of them looked a little bit, a little bit rusty. But it, it was it was a good match. I liked it. Um, um, Hennig was selling a left knee injury, which looked really convincing. Flair was going crazy, trying to just non-stop, trying to trying to kill him basically. Um, and one thing I love about Ric Flair, which which I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I mean I love everything about Ric Flair, but one thing that he does, which you don't see enough of in pro wrestling, is when someone's getting beaten up, they they say, "Come on in, give me, give me some more." And when Ric Flair does it, it's like a Rocky thing. It's like, no matter what you do, I'm still going to want more. And that's why Ric Flair never really, really works as a heel. Because you still think, oh my God, he's Ric Flair, look at him. Because he wants to fight. And whenever someone wants to fight, it's very hard to, to make them a, a heel, as we've seen in the WWF with, with um, Steve Austin. That's, that's exactly why he, he, has be- he was becoming so popular. Um, but yeah, uh, back into the match, I, I liked it. It was, a, it was a good pace. There was a story behind it. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I, I, I feel that this, needed, this was what it needed to be at this stage in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the angle between the two of them. Um, but it's hard, to, it's hard to know where they're going to go with it because it's like, well, you left the horseman and now I've, I've served you some punishment for that, or at least a bit of it. So they could probably have another match. Will it be any better than this? Maybe. Will it be, will it be as good? Probably. They're not going to have a bad match, these two, I don't think. Um, but it never really went above good. Uh, but it was, I mean, considering what came before it, I, I, I jumped out of my seat when Ric Flair came running down the aisle after that. So, Yeah, I, I don't think this match was was all that much of anything, really. Um, you know, that's why I kind of asked earlier in terms of, you know, did they, did they bring Flair back too soon? Like, given the way they presented the angle last month and given the way that Flair spoke, I figured they would have waited probably until Starcade, you know, because they were talking about him being out for two months. And then build it as basically the, the second match on the card, particularly now that there's there's doubts over your know, injury problems with both. Uh, I think Scott Hall's okay. It's Kevin Nash got prior to six, actually, funnily enough. Because there's doubts over guys like that. I figured they might push Flair and Henning into the... The, the, the second match or second to last match on that show, I think you can really build to it then. But as it was, like, the the crowd kind of popped for Flair storming out. They popped for the bit with the robe, and then the rest of the time they were quite quiet. Um, And the match wasn't very good, which doesn't help. You know, I've said it enough times this year. I think Ric Flair has, you know, I think Flair has lost a step or two this year. I don't think that's that's anything to say. And Henning is not the guy he was five or six years ago. You know, I think he's he, he he's got over some of the worst of the ring rust. I think you would have seen him from a couple of months ago. Um, I thought the match lacked drama. I thought the match lacked heat. I I don't think the finish was all that strong. Like the the idea was Flair kicking the belt into Henning's face was the retribution for last month, but it didn't really look that great. Like yeah, symbolic. It probably looks symbolically better than it did physically, which wasn't that solid. Um, yeah, I, I just, I just think they missed an opportunity to make more out of this. But then again, I don't know that Kurt Henning and Ric Flair means all that much in 1997. Whatever you do, I don't think Henning is particularly over in front of this audience, and Flair is still Flair. Um, but to me, like yeah, like if. Flair a couple of years ago might have been able to save this match or an in-ring standpoint. I don't think he's capable of that anymore. 
And then you're relying on the match having enough legs in it already, and this didn't have that. And again, I just wonder whether it would have been better if it had lasted a bit longer. But there we go. It was fine. Um, but I, I think they would have expected more from this. I don't think this match was as good as they would have hoped. J.J. Dillon is back. He's out uh, on the R-way with uh, Gene Oakland. He says that despite what Bischoff said earlier tonight, the main event will take place. I think Bischoff was also angling for the... Uh, for Hogan and Pyth to be cancelled. Uh, Dylan has a document. Uh, he walks off. He says, uh, Bischoff's angry. I can't remember what here. Uh, he says that if Sting shows up, he wants control of Nitro. It's basically the whole thing about that. But Dylan says he's got a document saying that they will do the match tonight, etc., etc. Moving on next, it's Scott Hall with six versus Lex Luger with special guest referee Larry Zabisco. Hall gets in. Uh, Hall gets in over Luger in the corner. Sabisco is very vocal as he separates them. Lots of stalling, headlocks and resetting in the early going. A really slow start. Hall has Luger in a sort of Atlas-style double-arm submission. You imagine Hall standing where the stone would be. Six starts getting involved. Sabisco did tell him to get out of here, but it seems like it's more of a warning than an instruction. Zabisco has a comedically mechanical count, which has become quite annoying during the match, I'm sure. Hall hits a fallaway slam. Six gets bloody annoyed at the slow count. He howls three. Long chin lock from Hall. The crowd are silent. I've got a wild theory that the idea behind this was that they thought that Flair and, uh, and Henning would have so much heat that they needed to send Hall and Luger out to calm the crowd down. Yeah, they didn't need to do that if that was the plan. <laughs> Luger rallies with a belly to back. He falls to the outside. Hall and Zabisco square up. Hall goes to throw a clothesline and Zabisco sends him over the top. Eric Bischoff gets on the apron. Zabisco kicks him off and there's a big pot for that. Both men beat a 10 count. Luger hits a reverse atomic drop and signals for a rack. Bischoff distracts. Zabisco six kicks Luger in the head. Hall shouts to Zabisco to count. He counts the first two, almost stops, and then reluctantly counts the three. Anyway, some point in amongst all this, Zabisco kind of works out something funny's going on. So he takes a book out of the, uh, I think it's the Royal Rumble 1994, uh, I was going to say 94, or is it 96 they did the video replay technology with? Yeah, Rumble 96 and Josie and Helmsley, yeah. That's the one. The free-for-all, uh, actually, that was. That's the one. Um, and Zabisco calls for a video replay. We do have a video wall, and you're thinking, well, okay, this is a bit weird. You know, this is, this is an interesting precedent. So anyway, we see a replay of the, the, the kick by six to the back of Luger, or the back of Luger's head. There's one problem. Six almost conclusively missed his kick. You can't be 100% certain, you can't see daylight, but you can infer pretty much within guarantee that six did not connect with his kick, which will be fine, but this is video technology. And does it count as an interference if he doesn't connect with it? Well, there we go. And, of course, the idea was Six was actually meant to hit him. And they weren't actually telling the story that he missed. So Zabisco goes, yep, that's enough for a restart. Hall's not happy as he gets walked back to the ring. Hall shoves Zabisco. Zabisco shoves him back. Luger then catches Hall in a rack. Zabisco calls for the bell as Hall submits. Immediately does that. Six gets in and knocks him down. Larry rallies for a bit as Luger collapses out of the ring, but the numbers game catch up with him. It ends up with Hall counting a three on by Bischoff on Zabisco. Tom? Yeah, this was... Um, I, I think you, you're right in, in what you said about that they, they went into this one thinking, OK, the crowd are going to be high-energised after the match that came before it, because Flair and, and Henning are going to blow them up. 
that didn't happen. So this was very slow to start, very slow. Um, the commentate, commentating team described it as, and I quote, an emotional roller coaster um, within the first few minutes, and that the only emotion I had was boredom uh, at that time. Um, but uh, Scott Hall tried his best to to turn it into something. Um, he, he was doing some good selling, and then you know there was an injection of intent um, from from Hall. He, he, he sort of seemed to want seemed to want to do something, and, and, and both of them got exhausted really quickly. And I, it was almost like they were echoing how I felt. It was almost like it, again, it was a bit of a comedy thing. Um, and again, I, I, there's just things that you, things that I noticed in these matches. Like there was there was a point when they were outside of the ring that uh, Luger was on the ground, and this guy in the I think I'm sure they're all half drunk, and this guy shouted at him, "Who dyes your hair?" <laughs> which really which really made me laugh. Um, and the finish was just, I mean, God, this 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 goes into again goes into the library of what the fuck are you doing finishes um, because they didn't. I just, you know, the video replay thing is like, if you, WCW are constantly walking the line or blurring the line of kayfabe, as in, what do you think is actually real and what's believable here? Because there's so many times when someone is leaving down the aisle, they say, oh, I've had enough of this, I'm leaving this match. The person runs behind them, they're on the screen, which is at the entrance, so the person walking down the aisle knows they're on the screen, and they can see the person behind them, and they go, oh no, I've been hit from behind. And you're supposed to go, ah, oh, okay, fine. With this, as Bob said, you could see that it didn't connect, that the kick, um, I don't know. The crowd seemed, to, seemed, seemed okay with it, though, because when, when Luger put him in the rack after that, they popped for it. Um, and it was a bit chaotic with Larry getting involved. I quite liked that, because the rest of it was pretty dull. I felt a bit sorry for Scott Hall, because I just think Lex, Lex Luger is just so over well not overrated it's just so overused they they, they 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 just try and get some they, they try and get like blood from a stone um but yeah no I, I don't i don't it was a bit it was all it was a mess it was slow scott hall is better than this and he deserves better um and the crowd but the crowd seemed to be okay with it so you know maybe maybe it wasn't as bad as i think it was but i really i really didn't like it however one thing i did know is that i think that eric bischoff is a fucking good heel he is he is so good at that job and I thought that at the end, he's so smug, he's so uh, like he's so dislikable. Face you want to slap? Exactly, and that's it's, it's exactly. It's like Bill Alfonso in ECW. He's got that look where you go, oh, "I do not like you." He hasn't even got to say anything, um, and he plays it really well. And that was that was one thing I noted at the end uh, in the chaos that, that prevailed after the match. Um, but yeah, no, I, did, I didn't think much of this at all. Roy, and who dies Bischoff's hair? I wonder. Um, this match has got some very bad reviews. Although almost certainly rated to the finish, and rightly so, I'll get to it in a second. I think this showed how unappreciated, in some quarters, not on this show obviously, how unappreciated Scott Hall is as a worker. I think he's had a very good year in ring on the whole, actually, and he showed it again here, being in there with an absolute stiff. An unmotivated Lex Luger is the absolute worst Lex Luger. He just did not give a stuff in this match at all, and Hall was absolutely eating for two in there. He was working all the spots himself, all the transitions, he was working them. It was, it's such a strange thing to say about someone like Luger, a 13-year veteran. But this was an absolute carry job from start to finish from Hall, and he did an excellent work of it. So he deserves so much more credit as a North American upper main event style worker. I think he's excellent. This is probably his best complete in-ring year I've ever seen from him. So I just hope he gets more credit in other circles than he does or has in the past 
because I still think he's just seen as a talker, first and foremost. But this guy is a really more than solid worker, and he had to be here because Luger was giving him nothing. Even if they've got this finished right, it would have blown, though, because if, you could, if Zabisco has the wherewithal to think, oh, it's the NWO winning a match, something might be a bit fishy there, let's have a look at the replay. If he can do that, why doesn't every other bloody referee do that? It's just the inconsistency. These things just, they bring them up or don't bring them up just when it suits them. And it's almost as if, as a viewer, <clears throat> you're being punished for looking too closely at things. And you shouldn't be, you should be rewarding your audience for sticking with you week after week, month after month, year after year. And indeed, it certainly did not help that they balls to finish up, you know, a million ways from Sunday. Six was absolutely nowhere near him. You could see even from the hard camera watching it live, they got that one wrong. But these things happen. The ending beatdown was okay. The crowd were there for Luger winning. But one thing that really worries me, Bob, we've got this. We've got Sting is our number one babyface in the company, I would say. DDP is pretty safely number two. And number three is Larry Zabisco. Yeah, um, I, I think the the unmotivated Lex Luger thing is Luger kind of realizing that uh, that this is that this is a, a match to get over Scott Hall versus Larry Zabisco. Yep. Luger's just a foil, um, so that's why he was kind of a bit, uh, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, the, the, I, I, I've got a funny feeling the slow start was designed to come down from Flair and Hennig, and they they didn't need it, um, and that didn't help because they they probably should have been smart enough to change that. I mean, there's there's enough experience in that ring for someone to go, hang on, lads, you, you don't need to, you know, the, the, we don't need three minutes of wrestles there. We need to bring the crowd up quickly. Um, so I'm surprised didn't go with that. Although admittedly, some of the wrestles at least were to get over interactions between Hall and Zabisco. So there was at least some semblance in that. And then we kind of we 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 rally to the finish, um, and yeah, like you know, it wasn't. I don't want to say it was tremendously obvious six missed. It's obvious enough, but again, it wasn't like he he missed by two feet. He missed by about six inches, I think. Um, and not that it particularly matters. Like I don't think I don't think particularly my umbrage at all. This was the fact he missed, although it, it probably was. Like if it's, if it's replay technology, you know, that's the point, right? If it's replay technology, then, like, the, the the question isn't, did Six interfere? The question is, did he hit Luger? And the answer is, no, he probably didn't. In which case, the finish should stand. Like, that's the that's the problem. But then, we're, you know, that's the point. When you're, you're, you're kind of breaking your fourth wall when you say we can review all these things. And Rory, you, you're not the first person to point this out. You know, if you can review this, you can review everything, right? Um, but, yeah, the match was... Okay, uh, Hall was trying, Luger wasn't really, but you know the, the match was to set up for Hall versus Zabisco. I don't know if that's a good idea, but that's where they were going. Um, it wasn't particularly good, but the you know and the video replay technology was what it was, but it made it memorable. I mean, I've got to say that a lot tonight. Um, stupid shit making matches memorable. There we go. We were next to Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth versus Diane Dallas Page in a Las Vegas sudden death match. Page has a heavily strapped up side. We start on the floor with a bit of a punch kick start. Page uses the torn Surrey shirt to do a snapmare on the floor. Wow. And how about the fact that Bischoff says the NWO wants to take it over? Both they do. Both men feeling the effects of this, guys. Both of them down right there. Double close line. That means each guy close line, the other guy at the same time. Hello? 
in the ring brawling, both men go down. Dusty says a few things, and then after some silence in the house, he just goes, hello. Because, uh, yeah, Dusty, Ooh. I think, if you're on commentary with Dusty Rhodes, I get the feeling you, you, you learn quite soon to tune him out. So that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Page shades up for a diamond cutter. Cyrus gets to the floor, but Page hits a crossbody over the top. We're back to brawling by the guardrail. We're going to the crowd. Richards looks a bit giddy, and not for the first time, Bobby Heenan calls him Stevie Ray. We go in, right into the crowd now. One bloke is so happy they're brawling by him, he whips off his shirt. Page sends Sarage into one of the tombstones on the set. Dusty, in one of the funnier lines he'll ever produce, says, that's a real tombstone, pile driver. Page body slams Sarage onto another one. It disintegrates. It looks like polystyrene, which isn't the best look. Given these, these moves are meant to look tough. Back in the rings, back at to ringside, they're both saying like they're near death, which I I kind of thought was overdoing it. I don't think they'd brawl for long enough to make that work, but there we are. Saris grabs the camera, goes to hit a down page with it, but Page gets his legs up, and Saris ends up kind of wearing the camera on his face. Liz gets a stunt glass tray, I think, and dumps it over the back of the ref's head. Uh, Liz then takes the camera cord and chokes Page with it hard. That's kind of the first time you'll see Liz properly get involved in the match. Out comes Kimberly, or as Dusty Rose called it, catfight, 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 catfight. He was so fucking happy when when uh, when the Kimberly came out to have a go at Liz. Kimberly grabs Liz by the hair and drags her to the back. Out comes Nick Patrick. Both men barely answer a sounding ten count. Page goes for a darn car, but Sarge hells onto the rope to block it. Sarge hits probably the worst elbow drop of his career, although that was the plan, i.e. he was selling so much it was meant to be shit. Sarge hits a body slam, he goes back to the top and hits a much better elbow drop second time around, and Page barely answers the ten count. Sarge goes to the top with another body slam, but Page kicks Patrick as he goes up for it. Page hits a diamond cutter, Patrick recovers remarkably quickly, starts the ten count, which both men barely get up from. Page goes for another, Sarge blocks it, and then hits a low blow. Out comes a clearly fake sting. Even Tony Schiavone went, hang on a minute, that doesn't, you can't fool me, that's not the real sting. Turns out the sting was Hulk Hogan, as Tom mentioned earlier. Um, you know, I think the, you know, and, and the fake sting comes out and hits, hits Paige with a baseball bat. I think that was all to set up for a match the following night on Nitro. I don't believe they're planning Hulk Hogan versus Dallas Page. I don't really know where they put it. But that was the idea, and they mentioned so on the on the Nitro the next night that Shivoni said it was Hogan that attacked him, um, which I guess was part of the reason why Shivoni was able to pick up on this so quickly. Anyway, the fake sting hits Page with the bat. Page rolls into the ring, and he can't answer the ten count. And Savage wins the match. Savage nails Patrick after the match, takes another shot at Page. They go to stretch a Page off, and Savage attacks him again. Rory, oh, so much to talk about here. First thing, Dave. They've really got this feud arse backwards for me. They had their first match at Spring Stampede, which was a straight-up match. The main event of that pay-per-view was just about right on the line of a good match. And if you take out the ref bump, Page won that one 100% cleanly. Then they have their lights-out match at uh, at the Great American Bash, which again, main evented, and Savage goes on and wins that one. So if you're going to have the babyface go over first and then have the heel go over second, then surely, and you're going to have one ultimate, anything goes, do whatever you want, no disqualification match to finish it up here, then Paige should really be the one going. I, I was 
absolutely expecting Page to win this match and move on to something else. And I don't really see this feud continuing beyond here, so they're going to end with the heel winning the series 2-1. They're setting up for Savage and Flair again, I think, is the idea. Well, there you go. So, yeah, for some... All this talk backstage, I'm reading in the Observer back in April that this was a feud that Savage himself particularly requested because he wanted to put Page over and take him up to the next level. This is a weird way of going about it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this match, probably even more than the one at uh, the Bash, which, which was a bit hokey at times. A few many cheesy setup spots. This one actually felt like a fight all the way until the ridiculous overbooking. I liked them brawling through the crowd because nowhere else could contain them. And yes, it was a bit stupid them fighting with uh, polystyrene tombstones, especially when Pace kicked one away. I mean, if that was made out of stone, then that boy's got a pretty good, uh, got a pretty sweet right foot, but uh, he exposed the roost there. But I have no problem brawling with those because it just felt as a natural position in the arena where they ended up to be. It didn't feel like, uh, oh, we better do this because it looks a bit cool when they brought by the fucking picnic barbecue a few months ago. Then it gets back to the ring and then it all falls apart. So I had so much there to try to remember, Bob. So I'm glad you did the play-by-play so I can recall Mickey J eating a glass tray and Elizabeth in the... In what possible context was there just a glass tray lying around? (laughs) Just on the off chance we've got a glass tray here. You're not supposed to use it, though. (laughs) Ridiculous. At least the, uh, the cables that Elizabeth used to choke him, they're there for an actual reason. And then it just went on and on. I just lost track. Until I so said I liked all the multiple sting stuff on Nitro earlier. We do not need though to be doing the NWO member dressed up as Sting thing. It's old hat. Nobody buys it. Even Tony Schiavone, even Tony Schiavone is now um, uh, completely zoned out. So don't go there again. If Hogan wants to attack Page, Hogan attack Page. Nobody's believing the fake Sting stuff anymore. Sting himself should be reclaiming that, which with the multiple things he seems to be doing. Take that on to another level. Don't keep giving us that. And it just sort of died a bit of a death. It would have carried a ton more weight weight if Hogan had attacked Page. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's kind of like this whole kind of, well, we'll have Hogan attack Page, but we'll call it Sting because we don't really want Hogan to endorse Page, but we need to set up a main event or a, or a significant match for the next Nitro. It would have made a fight like more sense if Hogan had just run out of level Page. Absolutely right. Just so then, then you set up at least a big T, I know they had a match on uh, a Nitro the next day, a big TV feud. You can even take it into pay-per-view. Hold it off, bring it up for a couple of pay-per-views when Hogan dangs to turn up. Uh, early next year, perhaps. Yeah, it's just silly, and nobody believes it anymore. And I really wanted to love this, but it it fell to pieces just as badly as that uh, that glass tray did, I'm afraid. A real shame. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this match. I think by this point in the proceedings, I was so... I'd felt so many different things and, and shouted at the TV and been like just wanting things to be different, thinking things couldn't be better. At this time, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to let whatever bit is going to be, be. And this match was, was chaos. I, lo- I really, really liked this match. I think that DDP is... I, I, I'm so impressed with DDP's work this year. Um, he has improved to a level of... I can't really think of anyone that has improved to the calibre that he has... He's a total main event guy, and he's against uh, an absolute legend in, in Macho. In Macho, and I, I know the you know that the problem here is with WCW at this stage is that a lot of the guys aren't at the best. They they they've already peaked. 
and they're trying to recapture their old glory. But what you also get with that is that you know that even if they have a few bad matches or a few average matches, they've still got what made them so good in the first place in them. And I really liked the energy and the, like the ferociousness that, that Randy Savage brought to this match. And DDP counteracted it really well. Um, there are a few key things that you can talk about other than the match. You know, Dusty Rhodes' commentary is worth listening to just, just for that. He's, uh, it's like he'd lost his mind. That, 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 that hello at the start is absolutely ridiculous. He says something, there's about a three-second silence, and he just goes, Hello? <laughs> and they go, yeah, we're, they go, we're still here, Dusty. If we don't say anything, that doesn't mean we're not here. <laughs> okay, well, all right. They sat right next to him, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Am I alone here? Is anybody, is anybody else actually here? Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, that's the thing. By this point, I was so... I think Dusty had had it as well. I think he was just lost his mind by this point. Um, but, you know, the, the guy taking his shirt off in the crowd, Macho Man shouted at a kid in the crowd, and he's like, get out the way! This little eight-year-old girl, and I just thought, this, this has gone fucking nuts. And um, I, I, I loved, I really enjoyed it. It, it. it was, it was chaos. They were, you know, throwing each other into the the, tomb, the, the, the tombstones, uh, as, as, as Dusty put it. Um, you know, DDP got thrown into the steps and went head first. But the, the cat fight thing, it was straight out the ECW playbook. You know, the, the use of the camera. This was about as much of an ECW WCW match as I think I've seen. Um, in singles anyway. We saw a few tags that were like it. But um, there was a great... I thought... I, I really was impressed with a couple of things that, that, that Macho Man did in, in this. Um, he... There was a block that he did for the diamond car where he just held onto the rope. And it was really effective because he, he got dragged down with it. But it, it was almost like if you didn't look at it close enough, you'd be like, did they botch that? But it's no. Because if actually... If, you, if, if DDP was going to do that on you, you would get dragged down with it. But he held the rope. That was effective. And also, Bob, I think you mentioned it, it may have been the worst elbow that he had done. But it was, I think he sold that brilliantly because it, it, was, it was like, I'm so exhausted, I can barely pull this off. But he managed to. And it's like, well, it's not the proper elbow, is it? It's not going to get you the win. And it didn't. And then when he went up and did the absolute pièce de résistance of the elbow, you were like, right, he's nailed it. So I thought that was very good. Um, and yeah, it was a bit chaotic at the end. But do you know what? In comparison to some of the other chaotic scenes on this pay-per-view, it made sense to me. Uh, I, I, I bought into it. And the, the Sting thing, I mean, fucking hell. As long as it's just one Sting, even if he's got, like, you know, permatan arms and, and blonde hair peeking out underneath the ridiculous wig that he's wearing, it's, at, least, at least with that you can go, oh, it's Hogan. Whereas it's, it's not like, it is that Sting? Because uh, if the commentators just went, okay, well, all right, we don't even know if this is Sting at this stage. You're like, you're with them. But if they're, like I said earlier, if they're going, here comes Sting, and you're, and you're thinking, no, 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 open your eyes, it's not Sting. Here, I think it worked here, and you, it was pretty clear that it wasn't Sting, and it was pretty clear that it was Hogan. Um, and the win was, yeah, a bit, not sure where they're going with it. I think, yeah, like you mentioned Flair and Savage, that's something that I'm not sure if I want to see that. I love both guys, but I'm not sure if it's something that I really want to see at this point in, in their careers. Um, but no, overall, I, I, thought this was a, I thought this was great, really good fun. I'm quite surprised Hogan didn't come out like dressed as Sting, but with a do rag on the top. You know, just, just his own his own take on Sting. Like everything else is is normal, but just like a bandana, just to be like, you know, just because like why not? Right, he's got to be different. Um, yeah, I I I, I like this match. I, I don't know that it was brilliantly laid out. Like I, I thought they went to the crowd too quickly. I. I the broadening on the stage made sense, but, like, fucking hell, like, if they were going to do that, they could have done with something better for the tombstones than polystyrene. 
And yeah, when, when Savage kind of bounced off it, it kind of made the move look less impactful. When they got back to the ring, it's like, well, shit, they're selling a lot here. Like, yeah, they're selling a lot. They haven't done that much. Um, and then they just went through a lot. Like, I, I thought this was a good match. I just don't really know that I liked a lot of the decisions they made as a part of it. Like, I don't know that I liked Savage winning. I don't know that I like Hogan coming out dressed as Sting because it felt like they just half-arsed it. Like, why not just have Hogan come out and and you know attack Page? But that would require that would require Hogan endorsing Dallas Page, and I don't think he wants to do that, which is a bit of a shame. Um, and yeah, like it's it's okay. Like the match was good. Like I said, the the the, the, crit, the, the, the point about Savage doing a shit elbow drop wasn't a criticism, which is an observation. It was just that was part of the story they were telling. Um, but yeah, like, I, I don't know that I need to see a fourth match, and therefore I'm not sure the right guy won, and I'm not sure, unless they are planning Hogan and Paige for early next year, I don't, it's possible, unless they are planning Hogan and Paige next year, and if they are, I think I would have been a bit more overt about it, I don't know that Hogan coming out and costing Paige to win here was necessarily a great idea, um, I don't think Sarish needs to win, I don't know that there's enough in a fourth match, um, but there we are. It's a good match, though. It, it, uh, but, yeah, I think, Roy, well, you're kind of right. I feel their best match was their first one. They've been trying ever since to get close to that, and they haven't got close. Um, and I'm not sure this did either. Anyway, on to the main event. It's Hulk Hogan versus Roddy Piper in what I'd released according a Thunder Cage match, not for the WCW title. This was a proper fucking cage. I don't know whether they just looked at Hell in the South a few weeks ago and went, shit, we got to top that somehow. Um, but yes, ostensibly they, they they put together a what Dave Meltzer reckoned was a twenty foot high steel cage with no roof, just a just a side. But it did envelop the ring. I.e., there was about a meter and a half between where the ring was and where the cage died, so you could kind of brawl on the outside. Um, and this was a big fucking cage. Structurally, not the best as we're going to see. But there we are. Not for the first time. If you ever watch the War Games match, you'll you'll know what I'm on about. Piper comes out, he's got Hogan's title. Uh, there's probably a metre or a metre more between the ring and the cage, I've said that already. Hogan starts scaling the cage, and this is not secure. Piper then bites him on the arse, because, you know, why not? Piper bites him on the back in the ring. Piper just hammering Hogan with kicks. I've said this recently about Flair as well, but Hogan is starting to look really old. The door of the cage opens. Shivoni says, if either man gets outside, then it's all over. So, of course, they both just fall out, and the match carries on. Hogan slams the door into Piper's head twice. Hogan decides he's done, so he walks off. He gets on the R-way, and there's another sting. Looks like a fake one. Finally, announcers start to question it, which I guess at some point means uh, the real sting will do something, and they won't know. I guess is where they're going. If you eventually stop questioning the the fakes, if you eventually start calling out fake stings, at some point there's going to be something you're going to go, that's not the real sting, and it will be. I guess is where they're going. Anyway, they both start climbing the cage. I don't particularly know why. The cage walls are seriously insecure. I don't know why they're doing this. Second sting comes out by, to stand by the first one. Finally, used some of WCW's undercard. Piper and Hogan are putting in a lot of faith in this structure as they both get near the top. Hogan takes off his belt and starts attacking Piper with it. Hogan climbs the cage again, he gets right to the top and he gets over the top and there's a sting underneath him. This sting is antagonising him. They both get on top of the cage, my word these two are brave. Out comes another sting and a fourth. And I put in my notes, without 
knowing this was coming, I just put him on as a line. I wonder if a fan dressed as Sting could get involved. Not thinking it could happen, but just thinking, if any fan was smart enough, if you kind of wore like some kind of black jacket and you had the Sting face paint on, you just whacked a wig on and jumped to the ringside area. Would anyone know? It was just a thought process I had. Anyway, we're back in the ring. The Sting count, I think, is at six at this point. Hogan drops, two leg drops, Piper kicks out, and no reaction whatsoever from the crowd. Uh, I think some of that was just, you know, you keep mentioning Sting, people are going to wait for Sting. Um, but the crowd did not react at all for that. Anyway, Randy Savage comes out. You think, well, that's weird. He's just been in a death match, right? Well, apparently not. So he breaks through the walls of Sting, who do nothing to stop him. And he scales the cage. And he gets to the top of the cage. He holds on to the big cable that's holding up one of the corners. And he just flings himself into the ring. Now, at this point, Piper's got Savage in some kind of side stretch, right? And the idea, for reasons that nobody's really apparent, despite the fact we've clearly already seen you can get through the door and the door is open, is that Savage is going to throw himself off of the cage and accidentally land on Hogan. Now, Savage, because there's about a metre and a half to jump between the cage and the ring, and also he's got to clear the turnbuckle on the ropes, so he's got a fair amount to go, isn't particularly worried about hitting Hogan. You know, he's probably a bit more worried about the fact he's got to throw himself 15 feet down. And, you know, he's, he's had ankle problems recently. He's on crutches a couple of months ago, let's not forget. Let's we also not forget Randy Savage is almost 45. So Randy Savage, who, you know, fuck knows why he even agreed to do it, thought, you know, maybe I'm going to focus more on my own well-being here than I'm getting the move right. So Savage throws himself off the cage, completely misses Hogan and Piper, and just kind of flops down in the middle of the ring. Uh, he rolls over, Piper kind of goes over to him and kind of says, are you all right? He says yes. So Piper then just dumps him out of the ring. Piper puts Hogan in the sleeper hole, because obviously Hogan's meant to have been hit by Savage, so he's meant to be dazed. Puts Hogan in the sleeper hold, and Hogan submits. Not really much from the crowd. Savage goes in for the attack. Now, that is that as if that wasn't crazy enough. Now for the stings. So we get Savage and Piper, Savage and Hogan then start attacking Piper post match. Warren gets inside the ring and he loses his wig. They handcuff because you know that's important. They handcuff Piper to the cage, and I think at least the idea was, well, last month they thought, why don't we just lift the cage up with someone handcuffed to it? And this month they thought, well, if they they handcuff both of Piper's arms and then like tuck his legs between it, maybe you could start raising the cage. Anyway, they don't. The cage stays where it is. So anyway, I put the note in my things about a fan getting involved. That's literally what happens. Although as it turns out, it wasn't actually, it was an angle. So they just show, they cut to this camera at ringside, and this fan just starts scaling the cage. And it's never a good sign, because if any, anything actually involves a fan, generally your first instinct is to cut away from it, and they just show the whole thing, which is the first giveaway. The fan gets down the other side of the cage, gets in the corner and gets tackled by, I think it's Bobby Walker, who's one of the fake stinks. Tackles him down. Anyway, Hogan and Savage are beating up Piper across the other side. Hogan sees all of this. And he walks over, and then he just starts throwing work punches on the fan, as you do. Why not? They bundle him into the ring. They start attacking him a bit more. Referees come out. WCW security and officials come out, and they're trying to pull Hogan and Savage off of it. And also, if the whole thing was real, they would have just cut away from this, and Hogan and Savage wouldn't have done it, because, you know, lawsuits are a thing. <clears throat> but they're not. And that is how this concludes. Tom, just uh, good luck, is all I can say. So... Uh, I, 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 firstly, I apologise for the way that I'm going to review this uh, match because I genuinely don't know what to say about it. It's, it's, 
so mind-boggling from start to finish just to think how was this put on paper in the in the creative room how did they sit down and say okay this is what we're going to do because there are at least five clear landmark points in that story where you go hang on that doesn't make sense and hang on that why would he do that there, there, it, it's such a mess it's the mo- it's the messiest in terms of storyline and structure match I've ever seen. I, 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 it's, it's, as I say, it's mind-boggling. So I'll, tr- I'll do my best to get, to get through it and make some sense. So Piper coming out with Hogan's belt was actually a good start, because it's like, ah, he's got one over on him, okay? Right, makes well, sense. Well, Sting gave Piper the belt during the angle on the second Nitro. Sting had yeah. the belt first, and he handed it to Piper, and Piper starts waving it around in the air. So he had the title since then. Yeah, it, but it makes sense, right? It, and it's like, you know, NWO can't have everything. I've got one over on you here, sort of thing. So that's fine. Um, then the biting started, and you go, okay, it's Roddy Piper, right? All right, fine. That's, that's the sort of thing he does. He's a bit of a wild man. Now... Cage matches, in their very essence, are meant to be won by climbing over the cage, going through the door, or pin and submission. Now, can one of you clear this up for me? Did they say that you could win via pin and submission in this match, or did they say you have to escape it? Well, Tony Giovanni said you could win by escaping the cage literally about two seconds before they both did. Um, I don't know. But I, don't I, think they, I don't think they said at any point how you could win the match. Right, because the point I'm getting I don't, I don't here, remember it. Yeah, the point I'm getting at here is... If they're in a cage match and there's no ref in the cage, that to me says, well, the only way they can win is by climbing out or getting out the door. So w- within that sort of logical sense, you go, oh, all right, fine. Because you don't need a ref, do you? Because everyone can see once they escape. But the first fucking thing they do is walk out the fucking door. Literally, they, like, Pipe, Hogan goes first. Piper sort of almost wrestles him out. Hogan goes first. So Hogan's won. And the commentators have already said it. So you're watching it going... Okay, how is this match continuing? And then you go, all right, well, there's no ref. And then you go, well, actually, if, there's no, if they've already left and there's no ref to count a pin or mark a submission, how's anyone going to win this match? Is, there, is, it, is it ever going to end? And then as, as Bob went on to say, it goes from one ridiculous thing to another to another. The two things I'm going to talk, I could talk about this forever because it's such, such nonsense, but the two big things for me were Randy Savage climbing the cage and jumping off it was absolutely nuts for a bloke his age to be doing that after having just fought a pretty brutal match um, nearly 45 years old. It was the only way in, right? No, that's I mean, what I thought. Like, it it would have made a semblance of sense if they'd have gone, well, shit, the door's unlocked, you can't get in. The only way to interfere is to throw yourself off the top or climb down the other side. Or yeah. it's not, it would have made a lot more sense had, you know, had the, <clears throat> say the, say the doors hadn't have been opened. And say so one of the stings has climbed down into the ring and so it was like patrolling the edge of the thing. You're not that it would have made any sense anyway. And so you go, well, fuck it. If I climb down and get attacked with a baseball bat, I know, I'll throw myself across the gap. It would have at least kind of made sense. As mm. it was, it was just being a bit of an idiot. Sorry, Tom, carry Yeah, on. no, it's fine. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, and on the way down there, Macho came running down and there were literally about 10 stings in the aisleway. And he basically just walked past them. And if the logic is saying, well, all the stings are there because it's combating the number of people in NWO and stings sending them out to, you know, be a, a counterpunch to, to what they're doing, why would they all just stand there and let him walk past? It's like, all right, all right, Randy, what are you up to? All right, are you going up the cage? All right, mate, yeah, yeah, be safe. It's just, I, it makes no sense. <laughs> the, 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 botch, the botch of the axe handle that Randy did was like, at this point, you're not going to go, oh, that's terrible. Oh, they botched it. At this point, you're just like, fucking kill me. I want this to be over. Or kill them. 
Um, just you know, the, and then towards towards the end, um, when the referee came in, the referee left the door open of the cage. Now the referees are there to keep some sort of sense to it. He leaves the door open. Oh come so, on! At this point, it's your referee. No, I know. Pocket, right? I know exactly. So what? You know, they may as well they may as well have send. You know, uh, oh, I, uh, you could have done anything at this stage, and you would have just gone, "All right, okay, absolutely anything they could have done." Um, the fans didn't give a shit about the match either, and that's that's one of the key takeaways for me: is the fans just did not care that, like, like you say, two leg drops, kick out, don't give a shit. Ten stings, don't give a shit. Randy Savage jumping off a cage, yep, good fun, but once he's hit the ground, what's the point? Uh, fan comes in, is he a fan? Is he not? Don't really care. I'm surprised that all the fans didn't jump in the ring, to be honest with you. Maybe, maybe that's what they were trying to do, to make some really memorable moment that would go down in folklore pro wrestling history as being, like, utter chaos. But it didn't happen. Um, Hulk Hogan's too old. Roddy Piper's not that technical, technically good of a wrestler. This wasn't a cage match. It was a mess. I just don't know what the fuck else to say about this. Uh, it, it, was, it, it was just a complete disaster. Storyline, structure, performance, fans, everything. Just a, what a mess. Rory, I wish you luck. <laughs> I'm going to need it. Uh, thankfully, my, my friend Tom there has talked about some of the more outre parts of the booking related to this match, which leads me to talk about the technical aspects, lucky me, <laughs> which probably wouldn't take me too long, but I will do my best. If you have somebody in there who has creative control over everything against somebody else who also has creative control over everything... I think we're talking oil and water there, aren't we? What, what's going to give in that situation? And we are going to get this fucking horror show. These two had a match at Starcade 96, which was not great, but it had just about enough nuisance value to keep it out of the, uh, the negative stars duds, worst match of the year. They then had a match earlier at Super Brawl, which I hated, Eric loved, but there you go, which also had a botched heel turn at the end. So we're not exactly cooking. We're 0.1 out of two. And now you have this. A cage match where none of the spots in the cage make sense. I had... It didn't occur to me at any point that these two actually wanted to hurt each other, use the cage, supposedly the ultimate in violence, three weeks after we'd seen a supreme example of it over on the competition. You have Roddy Piper, who hates Hulk Hogan so much... It's, this has got him so much Hogan over the last 12 years. He's got his chance. Hogan's locked in a cage. He can't get out. He's going to bite him on the arse. I mean, come on. I'm not saying I want to see these two ratchet things up into ultraviolence. We'd, we'd probably never see them again if that happened. Mm, okay. No, 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 no. I mustn't be cruel. Uh, arse biting and Hogan just resorting to his stupid belt shots of doom. I mean, come on. At least try to pretend this stuff means something. I mean, these two had some pretty fantastic brawls back in the mid-80s. They've never been master technicians. We were, I'm not exactly reinventing the wheel by telling us all that, but these two can scrap, or at least they could. But Hogan is just so old. He's, I mean, later on this month, we'll hear about Jim Cornette calling him 50% media creation. That's almost it's the full 100% now. He's nothing else. And Piper is just gone, and this match should just never have happened, because I think you guys have both alluded to it. People don't want to see... Hogan Piper anymore. The novelty has worn off. It's Hogan Sting. And that's what everybody is waiting for. And all the crowds we want Sting, real Sting chants went completely unanswered here. Yeah, completely awful. 
Hogan's probably the only person in the world who is shocked that nobody cares when the leg drop is kicked out of now. People just don't buy it as a finish in 1997. These two are just absolutely yesterday's men. The only person in this match who took a bump was 45-year-old Randy Savage, and it was completely unnecessary. Piper wins a match, and it doesn't mean anything, because it's not for the title, and the crowd don't care. I just wish now... I remember you guys talking about it on the show a few months ago when it looked like they were going for the long haul with Hogan's thing. It was mentioned in one or two of the, the publications that Halloween Havoc was going to be the place where they were going to do that match. And I'll tell you what, I bloody wish they had now. This was terrible, bordering on a disgrace to the profession, coming from two of its all-time biggest names. It should just never be allowed. But again, Hogan could do what he wants. Piper could do what he wants. Who the hell's going to tell him? Yeah, I... I, I do wonder how much history will remember just how much of the Sting Hogan build took away from other matches in the lead up to it. But the amount of times right now, like full stop, like main events of Nitros, people are just waiting for Sting. Main events of Papies, people are just waiting for Sting. We saw it last month, we saw it again here. Um, they're just waiting for Sting. And like yeah, Dave Meltzer said, there were people leaving during this match. A lot of people leaving during the post-match angle. Um, people were waiting for Sting, and it, it, it meant that Hogan does the leg drops, and nobody thinks it's going to be the finish. And none of us did. And no one did. Nobody in their right mind thought that's going to be it. Hogan's going to win cleanly. Um, not particularly that when Piper put in the the uh, the sleeper, that people thought that was going to be the finish either. Other than the fact that Piper has beaten Hogan with that before. Um. There is so much to unpack here. Uh, this is a crazy match. Like, it's a cage match, but no one really explained why. Like, you know, I, I suppose the logic to your point was, well, no one can get in. Okay, fine. Although we kind of blew that up. And then it was like, well, can you win by getting out? Well, they never really explained that. Shivoni on commentary, perhaps quite rightly, perhaps logically, if you've not been tuned into this, just said, well, you know, obviously they can't get out of the cage. This is a cage match. If someone gets to the outside, they've won. And then not two seconds later, they just fell through the door. And it was like, no, carry on. And then it's like, well, if you can't win by escaping the cage, why bother climbing? Because fuck me, it's an unsturdy enough cage. I don't want to get up on top of that. I mean, you know, it was it was flexing and wobbling and everything else. It'd been outside, it would have been blown about in the wind. And then the, the match carries on and they kind of come back to, to the ring stuff and Hogan drops the two legs. Piper kicks out. No reaction at all. Phenomenal lack of reaction for one of the most famous wrestling moves ever. Like a frightening amount. And there's a combination of things. It doesn't look like a great move in 97. Um... And the fact people were probably waiting for Sting, and the fact that you know nobody bought as a finish, and then Sting, and then Savage comes out, and and, and I'm thinking, well, this is strange. It's like you just put Savage to a death match, and the idea that he should be selling, legs it up the cage, gets up there very quickly for a guy that was like near death about 20, 15 minutes before, and it's like could just climb down. Nah, screw it. Just fling yourself off the gap. Right? A legitimately dangerous thing to do. Literally one of the most dangerous things we've ever seen anyone do. Um, you know, quite rightly, just aims for the, the space between the turnbuckle and the move. So he's got enough space to kind of flop down in. 
misses the move. Pi puts in the sleeper hole, wins the match. Not a huge crowd reaction for that either, um, which tells me that they were plugged in enough not to know it was a, a, a title change. Or dare I say, they were plugged in enough to know that, well, maybe it is for the title, but even so, I bet this will somehow end up being back on Hogan anyway. And then the fan bit. I mean, uh, no one's come up with a good explanation as to why. And I'll throw it back to you guys in a sec so you can come and think this. The only thing I can think is that they're so con- you know they're so concerned about the fan interference and God knows why to what Randy Anderson did that as well. But they're so concerned about the fan interference they thought, well, if we show that getting involved in a match is going to get you beaten the fuck up, maybe people will be less likely to do it. But the way they presented it, like it, it kind of looked cool. Like as in like the yeah the fan got like, got in the ring. They didn't cut away from it, they shot it right the way through, so it's like, okay, you get your 15 seconds of fame here if you want to get involved. And then you get Hogan and Savage throwing work punches at you, that looks quite fun. And I know obviously in real life that wouldn't happen, I think 99.9% of people would know that. But obviously we do have a problem with fan involvement. Admittedly, it manifests itself largely with people just throwing bottles of water at you. Um, Or, you know, soda or whatever. Um... Uh, yeah, uh, Tom, any more? Yeah, I think just on that point there, um, what they're doing, I think, is a couple of things. I think you're right. I think they're basically saying crowd interaction is something that we're aware of and we're going to address it by saying if you get in the ring, you're going to get beaten up. But the thing is, is they, they clearly, he clearly didn't get beaten up. He clearly was part of the story. And what, to me, that's going to do is it's going to make people who want to do that sort of thing, and they do exist, is going to make them go, do you know what, if I can fight, and I look at this match and I go, I really hate what's going on in the ring. And let's be honest, who wouldn't in this match? You might fancy your chances of stepping in and saying, do you know what, I'll get my 15 seconds of fame. I'll throw a punch at one of them and who's going to stop me? So whatever they're trying to do as a result of having that fake fan go into the, into the cage, A, it makes no sense because within the storyline of the match, why, why do it? What, I guess they're trying to say that, you know, Hogan and Savage and the NWO don't give a shit if you're a fan. They'll, 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 hit, they'll hit you and they'll try and, you know, smash you up if you, if, you, if you get in the ring. But they didn't. The fan was like, the fan was dragged away standing up and, and almost like kicking at them. So they didn't get one over on the fan or anything. And also, the other thing I wanted to touch on, Bob, is when, when you said about the safety of the cage, you could really summarise this, this whole ridiculousness of this, of this, of this match here where... When they when they when the when the when the, um, the wrestlers came out, they do that classic thing of, of Hogan did when he goes up to the cage and he puts his hands on it and he shakes the cage back and forth. The idea of what the person is doing there is going, "Is this sturdy? Yeah, that looks good. Yeah, that's fine. That's safe. That the cage almost fucking fell apart when he did it <laughs> in his hands. You could see it. It was like it was like a wobbling tower in in, in, a, in a thunderstorm. You could see it going back and forth. And he he does it and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, that looks about right. Yeah, all right, let's go." Um, so yeah. I, I, you, could, you could make a, a list as long as your arm of things that were wrong with this match. But the funny thing about it is, is that you've got to watch it. Yeah. You have absolutely got to see this match at some point. And this is why it's going to be so bloody hard to rate this, this pay-per-view, because in a way... No. Like, yeah, in a way, it's a classic, because it's so ridiculous. And if you haven't seen it, it's like, do you want to see sports entertainment and, and pro wrestling at its most preposterous? You have to watch this. So it's really tricky. Uh, so in a way, how do, you, how do you score this match? Really, it's a one-star match. But it's not one-star, is it? Because it's not that it's so boring that you, you, you fall asleep. You're never going to fall asleep. You're, you're going to scream at the TV and you're going to think, what the hell is going on? But it's not a one-star match. 
So it's impossible to review. I don't know how we're going to do this. Rory. <laughs> you're, you're right, Tom. It's, a, it's, it's not a one-star match. You're probably not in the way you're thinking of. <laughs> I'd say it's probably about six stars fewer than that, but, uh, but there you go. Just just to touch, because I think you can you make you more make great points there. Just one thing I want to add about the fan thing. Uh, it's that it was a bit of a kayfabe buster for me. We're supposed to believe that all, all these huge cages are demonic structures. And this supposed fan climbed up from bottom to top in about five seconds. Maybe like the easiest thing in the world. And again, I think you're right. That sort of thing does, if they're trying to put fans off from interfering, people are going to think, hang on, look at that. He's one of us and he got up there straight away. There you go. I'm going to try something like that. It's completely counterproductive. If you don't want fans to interfere, say so. Get it printed on tickets. Have your ring announcer say so before the show goes up. Now, don't use bells and whistles and trickery during your TV show to make what is undoubtedly an important point. Because if people are going to get, if fans are going to get involved, they're going to get bucked up. I mean, there's, uh, we'll talk about it in the other volume. Somebody tries to interfere in the uh, the tag team flag match at, uh, in your house, and you know, which gave us a bit of rare excitement during that one. Border comes in, he just kicks his ass for 10 seconds and he's dragged away. Now that, that should be an incentive reason. No, maybe just stay in your seat for the entire, uh, uh, the entire duration of the show. But yeah, it's point number 1,146 to talk about in this match. And we could probably put it, add another 10,000 to that list. It was, but you that, w- w- use that word again. Completely and utterly balmy. Technically, it was one of the worst things I've ever seen in any form of entertainment. But I've seen it. We've all seen it. And if you're listening to this, you've got to see it. Rory, try and score this show and summarise it. Oh, you utter bastard. Um, I, I've got no idea here. I've got, this, I, I, I'm going to write a one to and just see where I go. We, we were talking about this off-air before we went up, and I said I might be the first person to ever give a show question mark out of ten. And uh, But I've got to try and play within the rules, brother, so here we are. This had... Okay, let's, let's, let's try and break it down as if this was the, a, a normal show, the like of which we talked about for the last four years. This had some absolute marvels on the show. It had a great opener, and it had very possibly the finest pure wrestling match. Well, undoubtedly the finest pure wrestling match we have seen since we've begun. And if there's anything over the next X amount of years comes even close to that, then I want to be front row in sense to see it. We had some matches which were bang average and so boring that they almost became interesting. I'm thinking Disco Inferno Jackal in there, story-led. We had a tremendous carry job from an under, underrated, undervalued worker against somebody who didn't give a toss. We had the most whiffed finish of all whiffed finishes. We had a semi-main event, which involved everybody you could ever think of, Uncle Tom Cobbler, the 82nd Airborne and all. And then we had that main event, which had everything I've talked about other than the good wrestling bit. This was entertainment at its Apex, and the show lasted for about two hours forty-seven. I was utterly glued. I didn't take my eyes off. I didn't didn't have to stand up. I didn't use any of the matches for a cup of tea break. I was utterly transfixed. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me made me cheer. It made me boo. What else do you want from professional wrestling? So here we go. Here's the thing. I actually toyed with giving this the full boat. 10 out of 10. But that would almost break the rating system, and I don't think we'd be able to officially rate any shows, quote-unquote, properly going forward again. So I am 
downgrading, which sounds ridiculous, to, and not, not, just, no, I'm, I'm robbing myself here, quite frankly. My hands are up as I'm saying it. Nine out of ten. And I'm giving a pay-per-view nine out of ten as technically one of the worst matches you will ever wish your worst enemy to see. But you might hate that guy. He might be your worst enemy. But I'll tell you what, you'll, you'll bond over it at the end. <laughs> so yes, one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. One of the worst. We visited every single path in between. So yes, just watch Halloween Havoc. Nine out of ten. God, help me. I've got four numbers written down here. I still want it out. Tom, over to you. Yeah, I spent, I've got to be honest, Rory, I spent the last portion of your review laughing to myself because it's just, I've I've spent the last few days going back and forth as to how to rate this pay-per-view. I thought of 10 as well because, like you say, if you, what do you want in, in pro wrestling? You want to be engaged, you want it to be exciting, you want it to be... Memorable. Everything memorable. You want it to be something that you can, t- like a water cooler type thing. Or, you know, you can say to someone that else, wa- else that watched it. Did you see that? Did you see that? And I've gone back through every. I've just gone back through my notes, and I, I've looked at every match we talked about. There was a lot to talk about in every single match. Yeah. Nothing was boring. That's the well, thing. Even though, well, even though I really we, didn't. We say all this as we're about fifteen minutes shy of hour three here, or the beginning of hour number four. Like <laughs> well, you know. Like, we, didn't discuss, we didn't discuss the TV for that long at the start. But you know what? Like, it, I would hate, I hate any card that's average, because it's like, oh, you could have been so much better, but you also could have been so much worse. This show, could it have been better? Like, could you have improved it? You could have made it more logical and made the stories make more sense, but then it wouldn't be the show that it is. It's like the Joker card in pay-per-view history for me. So it's really difficult, and I could talk about it forever, but I don't, as Bob says, we're going into hour three soon enough. So I am going to give a score which isn't, I'm, I have to say, this isn't using the normal rating system that I would give to a pay-per-view, because if I was using the normal rating system, I would probably give this a three or four because of the quality of each of the matches, etc. But because of everything we've talked about before, and also because it had a couple of dreadful matches, I'm going with an eight. I was hoping the four or five minutes you guys spoke would have given me some clarity. I'm not sure it has. Um, this is a must-see show. I, I, I don't want to make a habit of saying that. I don't think I've ever said it before. Um, this is a must-see show where from probably the beginning of the second hour, there's barely a decent match on it. Um, but it's it's bloody... It, it, it's... It, I, <sighs> Um, I, I'm stuck between an eight and a half and a nine. Um, oh, do we do half? Okay, if we sorry, if we do half, so I'm going to give it an eight and a half as well. I forgot right. we do half. Um, and I, I wonder whether if Jeff Parker gets this far on this show, whether he'll ever appear again. If I give this high rating than the Canadian Stampede, um, <laughs> I have. Um, yeah, I'm going to give it a nine. Um, it, it is just must watch. Um. It is just like I don't know that you could replicate this. I don't know that you ever tried to make another show like this, whether it ever worked. It worked, you know. That there's so many things about this that make no sense, and there's so many reasons why this is a bad show. It's just, it is just must see. I think, like you know, we we had like three really really good matches, like an, an easy match of the year contender early on this show, which I think stopped a lot of people calling it a bad show, as a lot of people wanted it to do. Um. And then everything after that, 
a lot of it was, you know, like Dave Meltzer's ratings for most of these matches were all under one star. He gave Wright and Mongo like minus one and a half, which is really impressive. Um, which says a lot about how bad that finish was. But there's so much going on. There's so much to discuss. Like, I yeah, um, I'd have to check and see if we ever give a show combined as much of a score as this. I think it's it's the highest average for a, just what time I think it's the highest average for a three man booth. What, what did well, you because the Canadian Stampede? I gave it an eight. You gave it an eight and a half, and Jeff gave it a nine and a half. All oh, right, okay. Uh, so it'd be the same, yes, wouldn't it, I think. Uh, yes, um, it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going back. I mean, I think me and Craig got, both gave Star K ninety three a nine out of ten. Um, so admittedly it would be a higher average but we're I think you gave Spring Stampede 94 the same I think Craig was on that show as well I think you both gave that one 9 off the top of my head yeah pretty close it's it, 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 incredibly like it, it's a show in the discussion despite the fact it's objectively the worst show of anything we've given him yeah objectively <laughs> um, and yet it is must see like there's so much going on here um, yeah like if you don't want to watch the full 3 hours I'll no, fuck it. What should I do? Watch the full three hours. Like, I can't really pick things out of this show. There's so much going on. If anything, Even if you have to do the full Clockwork Orange, you're watching all three hours of this show if you're listening to this podcast. The only match <laughs> that I think you could probably miss, you could probably miss the opener, because it's really good, but it's not exceptional. Um, the only other match I think you could probably skip would be Flair and Henny. There's something going on in everything else that makes them definitely watchable. And Flair and Hennig is good perhaps because it's not as good as you might think and the only match is really good as well yeah I'll give it a 9 and more more woe betide all of us for, for giving such a bad show such a high rating but there we are it's the big 3 hour night try to close out the month on October the 27th we start with the close of last night's show minus a certain interloper Bischoff and Hogan arrive they couldn't be dismissing a Roddy Piper title victory could they? Hogan actively welcomes run-ins from the crowd. Bischoff then plugs tomorrow's movie. You're going to get that a lot during the show. We see last night's beating of Larry Zabisco, but we'll be hearing from him later. Mysterio wins with his first title defence for his cruiserweight title against Dean Malenko. Mike Tanay then gives us another insight into Lucha Libre. The Nitro girls are dressed up for Halloween. Bobby says the village people never look so good. We see Glazer for the first time in over the month. He gets vengeance over La Parker to think he could have had the Goldberg treatment says Dell and literally nobody else. Gene talks to Dallas Page. He says he knows it was Hogan and Sting last night and he wants a shot. If he wants a shot, he can have it. After commercial, Oakland then brings out Larry. He says Hall can fight him any time he likes. Hall arrives and shows off last night's finish, but we have no match. This week, Stevie Ray gets the singles treatment, but again, Harlem Heat falls to Luger's torture rack. We get our latest Raven video of the month, this time from a tree. It's better than it sounds. We get a fast-paced Jericho Guerrero opening, not foreseeing several replays of Jericho necking himself from last night, and Eddie works the injury before winning with a frog splash. Benoit and Finley have an expectantly physical run-out with Benoit winning with the Harley Race headbutt. Mean Gene brings out Flair, and he's going to be facing Savage later tonight. Next, we get Raven's in-ring debut, well, at least on Nitro anyway. Stevie says Raven wants a no-DQ match, but Raven offers to set him free if he joins him, but Scotty declines. A drop toe hole from the chair, Riggs sells an, an eye injury, EMT's arrived, and Raven gets his, takes his seat back at ringside. 
Buff is back and it's Paige Hogan to main event hour number two. They go surprisingly long and Paige does not look out of place. But a run-in from a bogus sting leads to a DQ and an NWO run-in for a change. As we run into hour number three, Sting arrives through the crowd in the NWO Scarpa, but he manages to get a Scorpion death drop in on both Henning and even Scott Hall. First up after Raw goes off the air, well probably not Dell because they're running out head to head now, Bill Goldberg, maybe WCW do know what they're doing, he gets a shot at Disco's TV title but the match never starts, he spears Alex Wright then hits a jackhammer, then spears Disco, then a jackhammer, Mongo arrives, they brawl and it gets split up. The Hogan-Bischoff show rumbles on as they're back out to talk about his quote-unquote victories over Piper and Page. Oh, and if you didn't know, he has a movie on TNT tomorrow night, in case you didn't know that. He does, however, in principle agree to face Sting. Could this be the only talking point at the final hour? Dell is not underestimating that. Gene ties his best to help Scott Steiner through an interview. The public enemy also have a title shot. Apparently, Rick and Scott retain. Somehow, even with three hours, they run short on time. We get a quick book of Henning US title match. Liz distracts the ref. Savage elbows Booker and apparently we're into the main event as Flair arrives. Flair and Savage basically brought around ringside for the entirety of their time until Henning arrives and we get a DQ finish because it's Nitro. Oh, and by the way, if you didn't know already, tune in tomorrow night to see the, the contract signing ahead of the Hogan's new movie, Assault on Devil's Island, live on TNT. All right. One thing to finish on. Uh, I was going to discuss Hogan and Savage, uh, Hogan and Sting, sorry, but we'll do that next month. Uh, let's talk about Bill Goldberg. It's an interesting little left step. He only debuted about six weeks ago, but it's pretty clear that WCW have got a plan for him. Um, I, I, I'd say that as the, the, the second week in, in, in amongst his, his list of squash victories so far, he pins Barbarian and Tony Chiavelli goes, Goldberg's 2-0 and on Nitro. And I went, this is weird. Like on a TV show where nothing matters, Goldberg winning two in a row matters. Okay. Uh, the guy looks like a fucking tank. I mean, he really does. Like he's a specimen. I mean, uh, Dale called him a cyborg Steve Austin. I don't think that's a, that accurate a description. Um, the reason to discuss him, what last is about where he's going, because I think for a while he's just going to plough through people, which I think is the idea. I think that kind of makes sense. Um, he'll face Mongo next month and he'll beat him, and then who knows where he goes next. Um, there was talks about him, you know, he was in a title match just going further this month, but he, he attacked him before the bell, so the, the, so the match never took place. Um, but, well, one, there's a bit about him feuding with Mongo, but I think we kind of already covered that. Um, Tom, I, I, it's got a, good to have you on as well here, is that WCW are really happy with Goldberg's development. Um, in part because he seems to be getting over, which helps. In part because he's got a great look, which helps. Um, but in part because of the comparison between Goldberg and Ken Shamrock, because mm. the basic idea is that Goldberg is is meant to is meant to basically be WCW's pro wrestling version of Ken Shamrock. And I think Tom, in six weeks, they've already done a significantly better job getting over Goldberg than WWF did getting over Ken Shamrock. Yes, um, an interesting one. Uh, this because. Goldberg has seemingly all the attributes that you would want from someone that you're going to push to the stars within pro wrestling. And what he also has is a legitimacy that as long as you don't look into it too much, you can you can hear and believe. And the way that he carries himself and the way that he, he works in the ring seems to back that up. But actually, comparing him to Ken Shamrock is completely ridiculous. 
um, bearing, in what, bearing in mind what Ken Shamrock has done in his mixed martial no, arts it, career. It, it's a comparison of, of, of getting someone over using the same kind of structure. They're not, they're yeah. not saying that they've, they've got over Goldberg as this shoot fighter. I think more WCW are going, this is what WF should have gone, done with Ken Shamrock, and I'm kind of in agreement. Yeah, but what I would say that Goldberg has that Shamrock does, doesn't is that he has the look. Shamrock looks like a guy that you don't want to fight with, but he doesn't have that marketability to the same level that Goldberg does. You, you're right, and I, and I don't think it's to be understated how important Steve Austin is going to be, I think, in Goldberg's uh, future. Because when you've got someone that is the bar, you know redneck, bar, bar-brawling uh, badass of Steve Austin, when you've got someone that's bigger, better built, looks just as stern, doesn't speak... Cyborg Steve Austin is a really good way to describe it. And yes, he has, you know, and I know for a fact he, he trains Muay Thai and he has done for years. And that will help him in his, uh, the way that he performs, the way that he sells, the way that he um, makes it look like he's really hurting people. Um, they're doing a very, very good job. A very good job. And even though we talked about the way he speared Mongo was sold dreadfully, you still think, my God, this Goldberg, he's going he's to absolutely run through anyone. And you talk about like, Eddie Guerrero being on the border of going, well, he, he could go cruiserweight, he could go heavyweight. You put him in the ring with Bill Goldberg and he's getting flattened. There's no, you know, and we haven't even really seen Goldberg work a, a proper full-length match at this point, I don't think, have we? No. Um, no. Is, I, yeah, it must have actually been three or four minutes long. I mean, that is going to be a challenge, is what happens if they get him far enough up the card. And, you know, there's, we'll talk about ceilings. I, I, I suspect Goldberg is a size where they may not have a choice. If it, you know, Goldberg's a bit like Vader. You, 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 can't, you can't really push a guy like Goldberg as a mid-carder. Like, it doesn't work. Like, well, it's, it's Ken Shamrock, right? You push Ken Shamrock like a mid-carder, he just doesn't get over. Um, to mm. me, Goldberg either works or he doesn't. Um, but yes, at some point, they're going to have to work out what they do with Goldberg in longer matches. Um, mm. And I don't get the feeling he's, you know, I, I, I suspect that the short matches are going to work because that's all he knows to do. I just wonder if you get to the point where you're putting him in the ring across from someone like a Randy Savage or a Scott Hall, if they get him that far in, say, six, 12 months. Just what do you do? Like, you know, you, I'd be surprised if Goldberg's flattening those guys in two minutes. It won't happen. Um, so then how do you get away from that? Then he's got to be able to wrestle. Then he's got to be able to sell. Right now it works. He doesn't have to do either of those things. He's just got to be able to hit someone with a spear and a powerbomb. And that's, or a spear and a suplex. That's really it. Mm, yeah, and it, it's, it's an interesting comparison with the Shamrock thing because Shamrock in the WWF world, it didn't work. And it's, it's really hard, to, or it hasn't worked at this point. And it's really hard to really pinpoint why that is. But I do think the big part of it is his look. I think that Goldberg, is, you can put Goldberg on posters. You can well, put... uh, yeah, but Shamrock's presentation as well. I mean, they brought Shamrock in as a guy. Uh, Shamrock came in and Vincent Mao went, oh, it's Ken Shamrock. Mm. And that was it. And then he, you know, he did like, you know, he, his, his pinnacle was the, probably the referee in the Austin Bret Hart match. Since then, he's been, you know, opening match, he's been winning DQs, he's been losing. Um, you know, they had the right idea in going over Vader, but they never really followed up on it. Um, mm. Sorry, Tom, carry on. No, it's fine. And I think if they had been clearer with Shamrock's direction, as in, they're clearly, I mean, what I would say, what I would say about Goldberg here is that they're clearly um, putting a lot of uh, time and money into getting behind him. And what I would say about him is that although he doesn't seem to be able to, you know, we haven't seen him work a technical match or anything over five minutes, he has a real presence about him. And it's something that when he's in the ring, you sort of go, oh, what, where are we going? What, what's going to happen next? And there's all sorts of shit they can do with him. Whereas with Shamrock, it's like, yeah, 
he's legit. Yeah, he can work a decent match. But you put him in the ring against someone like Steve Austin and it's going to be like, this shouldn't be happening. There's just something there that isn't quite at the same level. You put Goldberg, even at this stage, you put Goldberg in the ring with Austin. Austin's going to look at him and go, Christ, look at him. And it's, yeah, he's just got that, he's got that star quality about him that I think that Shamrock hasn't. But it's going to be really interesting, um, this Goldberg thing. Roy. Yeah, uh, is Goldberg, is he a healer of faces? I mean, I know he's now going to be feuding with Monga, but is he a healer Steve of faces Austin, at this point? Right? It's, it's, the, it's the thing to... Yeah, Austin's, Austin's, Austin is a face, though. Yeah, well, yeah, well... Um, mm, well true, yeah, but what, yeah, the, the lines have been blurred. A very, different one, a very different one, but yeah. it is still... He's somebody who's supposed but to... But it's, it's, it's the thing that he attacks Mongo, and, you know, Mongo is technically a face, I suppose, and then he attacks right as well. So he's yeah, not yeah. is the answer. It's the Steve Austin thing. He attacks, he attacks everyone... Um, and then, yeah, he, he isn't really one or the other. But that that in 1997 means he's the face. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I imagine that that's where they're going to go with this. They've clearly got plans in store for this bloke. I, we know that because you say Bob, they're they're counting his victories. They're not counting them correctly, but uh, they're are they keeping score of them? Because you've seen more Nitro this month than I have. Not, not quite. I mean, they, they keep. Well, it's more like the, the counting thing was more Chivoni saying out of nowhere he's two and zero. Oh, okay. Which doesn't matter. It's more just they are now keep saying he is undefeated, like he wrestled on a Saturday night, which was pre-taped and things like that. So it, it, they're not keeping score. It's more just that they mentioned he was two and zero. I mentioned that more just because they never say that, uh, and they are saying he's undefeated. Okay, yeah. So, okay, there we go. For somebody who's only just been on the main roster, who's probably only had a few matches, and they're already talking about about being an undefeated streak. Okay, that implies to me that at least at this point they've got some uh, they've got some plans for him, and if he is going to get over purely by two big moves and in two-minute matches, then at least for now, go with it. It doesn't look like anything's broken, so let it roll. As you say, the issue will be if if that becomes a situation where that's all fans want to see from him, then that could provide problems down the line because he will not be able to steam through, steamroller through some of the people you mentioned in two minutes. He'll have to have full-scale length matches with them. Again, if he's in there with somebody like Hall, who I praised the skies earlier for his ability to work with a mannequin like Lex Luger, then it might be a good thing. If he's in there with somebody like who's maybe struggling, like Hennig, if he loses a bit more over the next six months, then it might become a bit of a problem. So yeah, for me, and where they're going to go full-time with him, say a year down the line, the jury is out. But I like what I'm seeing. They're playing to the guy's strengths. And uh, he's already won a Super Bowl ring that isn't his, so he's doing well. Yes, yes, I, I think I said my piece on the on the Mongo thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, they, they, they've identified a guy. I mean, he's got a ten out of ten look, which is a, a really good starting point because there aren't that many guys, I'd say, in wrestling that have got a ten out of ten look. Um, that's a, it's a really good place to start. Um, and yeah, just having plowed through people for a while, like I said this before about someone like Rey Mysterio, I mean, right, the matches would have been different. But just have someone like Mysterio, just have him keep winning him and see where he gets. Um, you know, it's you don't want to do it with everyone, and you can get over by losing as well. Um, but yeah, like, you know, if it, it, I'd be surprised if matching Mongo is longer than four minutes at the pay-per-view next month. Or should it be? Um, no, and then Get, get him through, get him through that. Then move on to the next one, and then yeah, I so, say so, like, like either it does, either it doesn't catch on, in which case, well, you you kind of work it out, you can turn into something else, or you end up with a problem where he gets over, and that's a nice problem to have. 
Um, but we, we shall see, I think. It's so far so good, though. Presentation's been excellent. The whole thing with him you know, not talking, I think, works well. That adds a, a layer of mystery. You know, it's a bit of a, an obvious copy of the Steve Austin thing that he attacks everyone. If he starts, you know, spearing referees, then we'll, we can add another one to that list. There's nothing really wrong, I think, with that. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's worked for Austin, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd run with it on the Goldberg side. And let's see where you go. Um, but it's interesting. I said, the, the reason to bring it up is just that they... This isn't accidental. Like, you know, uh, uh, Nitro, WCW wins and losses do not matter. Hogan's lost to Piper three times in 12 months. Didn't matter. Um, It does not matter. And yet with Goldberg, it does. And that's the reason why it's noteworthy. And that's where we'll end the show. A big thank you to Tom Martin. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. What a joy it was to rate and watch this utter mess of beauty. Yes, something like that. Tom, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MarkOutMartin with a Y. And you'll be back with me and Chris whenever we take it for the uh, Volume 4 for, for USC. I think that'll be first weekend of November. Uh, and Roy McNamara. Roy, thank you very much. What? What a pleasure this one was. Yes, yes, uh, it was certainly was that. Uh, Roy, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can abuse me for giving Halloween Havoc 9 out of 10 on Twitter at RawsDM, R-O-R-S-D-M. Splendid, very. Thank you very much. We've got three of the volumes for you this month. Boy number one takes us through the WWF, the uh, the untimely loss of, of Brian Pilmer along with the, the bad blood pay-per-view. Volume number three takes the ECW looking at their latest preparations ahead of a new presenter on that show, by the way. You can uh, hear about that in volume number three. Uh, takes us to their latest shows, the title change, uh, the famous Bill Alfonso match where he just gets bloody as fuck, I believe is a technical term. And volume number four when we take it will be our latest trip to USC. A reminder, we're on Patreon for five bucks a month. If you'd like to say thank you and get early access to our shows, you can do so at wrestling20yrs.com or patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs links on our website as well and in the podcast description. Uh, you can find our website wrestling20yrs.com or on Twitter at wrestling20yrs and I think that's about it. So until next time, I've been Bob Bamber. This has been volume number two of the October 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye.